Locations are charged through Teletron. 1 800 382 October 7th, Providence Civic Center. Rat. Rat from the start. You put an arrow through my heart. Round and round. Yeah. God damn, they don't make them like they used to. Fucking 80s, man. Best shit ever. Oh, bet your ass, man. Guns and Roses, the rule. Crew. Yeah. Left. Then that Cobain pussy had to come around and ruin it all. You know? Like there's something wrong with wanting to have a good time. Yeah, I'll tell you something, I hated the fucking 90s. <laughs> 90s fucking sucked. 90s fucking sucked. Hello, this is Robin Crosby from Rat. And if your cable system... Hello, this is Robin Crosby from Rat. And if your cable system doesn't carry U68, then call him up, tell him to... Fucking quit messing around. <laughs> and if your cable system doesn't carry U68, then call them up and tell them that I need a drink. <laughs> Hello, this is Robin Crosby from RAT. And if your cable system doesn't carry U68. Okay, we're going. Hello, this is Robin Crosby. God, I can't even get my own name. It's fucked up. <laughs> All right. Hello, I'm Robin Crosby from RAT. And when you're in your car, remember to... <sighs> Hello, this is Robin Crosby from RAT. And when you're in your car, remember to buckle up for safety. It's the law. I mean, uh, I've run the full gamut, you know. Done everything I ever dreamed of and more. Don't feel sorry for me. I've lived the life of ten men. Nobody cry at my funeral. As a matter of fact, let, let's hit, have a party. All right. Well, we'll have a CFX party here. This, that was uh, Robin Crosby from RAD, if you weren't aware. Having some trouble with uh, public service announcements and then talking about, uh, you know, his imminent death uh, from AIDS and uh, related syndrome. So there you go. This is episode 40. CFX. Rat out of the cellar. We've been waiting to do this one for a while. Here we are. Slip. Yeah, it's funny Welcome. that that clip that you did with him fucking things up, and then the you know, of course, him talking about. I think that's is that from behind the music. Yeah, something. Yeah. Like that. So yeah. that is when he weighed like four hundred pounds, and he had you know it was almost gonna die yeah. at that point, which we'll talk about in the history a little bit. But that that's pretty much captures why we're doing why it's called out of the cellar and not just rat as a whole. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it's kind of, there's definitely a decline after this first album. I mean, whatever we think of it or whatever we decide the evaluation is, I don't think, I think most people, if they were to rank the Rat albums, I think, uh, you know, maybe some people might pick the second one, but I think most people are going to say that the first one's the best and it's sold the best. And it's, you know, it's, 
it's it's really to me it's you know it's the one worth talking about so i think but that's part of why you know um you know and, and and it's my theory i have some theories about his involvement in rat and how it kind of charts their decline but we'll talk about that anyway all right so the conceit of cfx of course is um that we examine different pieces of cultural ephemera music today movies tv uh books all of it examine the context the time they came out what's happened since and then our take on a future about evaluation evaluation and valuation should you go long short or stay neutral um, you probably have gotten all that if you're hanging around and know what we do here. So as we mentioned, we're doing Rat Out of the Cellar. Uh, we'll go into our personal histories. I'll go first here. Um, I heard this album very, very shortly after it came out, maybe even like, you know, within a week or two. Um, I knew of Rat actually before their first album had come out um, from they had an EP and one of the songs from that EP is a song called uh, You Think You're Tough, and we'll talk about that more in a little bit. And it was played a lot on KMET, uh, one of the you know, rock metal stations in L.A. Uh, that we've talked about in the past on this show quite a bit. Um, I had a friend who had that EP. Um, I remember the cover very distinctly with the, with the legs of the stocking with the, with the rats around it. Um, and, you know, it was definitely something that was played around. Uh, amongst people, I never had it though. Um, when Out of the Cellar came out, I got it soon after it came out. I actually had the album, um, not the tape or uh, CDs weren't a thing then, but I, I definitely had the album and I listened to it a lot um, at the time it came out. I eventually, uh, you know, got the second album and and wound up with all four of their first albums on CD. Um, which I, I think you'll talk about in your uh, personal history as well, Slip. Um, I liked Invasion of Your Privacy, the second album. You just mentioned some people like that more. I liked it more for a while, um, though in retrospect, it's not as good as Out of the Cellar for sure. But uh, I very much liked uh, the song Lay It Down. It may be my second favorite, uh, you know, rat song after Round and Round, which we'll talk about. But I also liked You're in Love. Um, and those are two great songs. The rest of the album is is not is good. And then their later albums have their moments for sure. Uh, Slip of the Lip, Body Talker, okay. But Dance, Dance, Dance is terrible. Wakefield Jr. is okay. Not my favorite. Um, I like the song, I Want a Woman. I like the music on it, but the but the lyrics, uh, I'll talk about the lyrics that I think are amusing here because we're not going to talk about this album, but there's a lyric in that song where it says, I take you up north and then you want to go south. You're just leaving another bad taste in my mouth. Yeah. Gross. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, you could talk about the lyrics of, you know, as to whether these lyrics are any of the lyrics are good or make sense. I think they're interesting on out of the cellar, but you could talk about the comparison between out of the cellar and the other albums. Cause I think they definitely, um, out of the cellar is different subject matter than the other albums. I mean, it seems like sex just takes over like, um, which we'll talk about. And and I think, you know, that lyric, God. And if, if you remember the video for I Want a Woman, it's got these little girls dressed up. It's weird. Yeah, it is. They weird. they have like these teenage girls dressed up as metal girls. And it's kind of like, I mean, the the it, the lyric is I want a woman, not some little girl. So it's kind of playing on that, but it's a little creepy to me. Yeah. Um, but great song. Great song. One of their yeah. better later songs for sure. So catchy. I agree. I agree. And uh I lastly, I I've never seen them live actually. 
Um, I've had friends who saw them. Um, I had uh, one friend of mine in high school saw them on the the, the dancing uh, tour. Um, their third, I think, their third album. Uh, I think I was a senior in high school, and uh, when he when he saw that, and he said that uh, they, they sucked actually, but he also saw he's one of the guys I went with to see Motley Crue, Girls, 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 which we talked about at length that that tour uh, during our Motley episode. And he said Rat were definitely better than than that. So they couldn't have been. I mean, admittedly, that Motley Crue uh, show was, the, like I said, the worst show I've ever seen. They were they were so incompetent. <laughs> but he Dude. said Rat were were pretty bad, and they didn't sound good at all. And like Stephen Piercy uh, just was kind of all over the place. He couldn't sing. Um, he seemed disinterested uh, in, in in the performing even at times. And there was just a lot of noise. He said so. Anyway. That's uh, and and in since lastly, you know, since that time, I've had those albums. I've listened to them on occasion. I, I wouldn't say I've listened to the albums all the way through. I, you know, I've made playlists and I've put some of the songs we were just talking about on playlists. Um, I listened to uh, you know, out of the cellar several times uh, for this uh, you know podcast, and we'll be talking about that. So not a lot of recent history with them, other than you know, playlists and just listening to the hits. So I'll turn it over to you. It's funny. We didn't introduce ourselves, right? That's Jeff and I'm Slip, but I'm decided I think I'm going to change my nickname to Way Cool Junior because <laughs> it's so cool, right? I mean, Way Cool Junior. I mean, that's like, I don't know. Okay. It's like when they had that, what's that character on The Simpsons, the dog, <laughs> who they tried to have the dog come in? Poochie. Yeah. Right. Remember Poochie where it was like, how uh homer did poochie on what was it itchy and scratchy brought in poochie and he was yeah. like i'm extreme that's like way cool junior that's like the level of way cool junior the whole thing <laughs> um so dumb anyway uh so yeah history very you know a little similar but not as in depth i mean i didn't own any of these albums um and i actually still don't although i'm i hope to rectify this um I would probably buy all of them, really, if I found them cheaply enough. But definitely out of the cellar, I'm going to get. Um, uh, you know, there's a box set that came out recently. This is kind of what spurred us to do this now. This is why I was kind of like, let's do this now. We talked about this. this is, we have a big list of shit we want to do. This was definitely on there. Um, but there's a recent box set that came out, and I watched a few of my favorite YouTubers. I really like Sea of Tranquility. They kind of went over this, and there was like an album ranking on another show called Guitar Hacks. So I was just like, oh, this is maybe it's the time to do Rat, you know, and then... I started listening to the catalog again. Um, but when I first heard it, it was the same. The, the beginning of our personal histories is the same because I listened to the same radio stations as Jeff, KMET and KLOS in Los Angeles. I heard, I think you're tough from the EP. And man, even though I wasn't, I was getting out of metal, as I've mentioned many times, I was kind of turning my back. You know, I'd been into the Motley Crue album in 82, but I was going towards classic rock. Um, and I you know, I was kind of done with this stuff, but man, I thought this song was killer. Uh, it was so hooky and just so heavy. I mean, I think we'll talk about how even though Rat is hair metal in looks, like the first few Rat's uh, albums are pretty fucking heavy rock. I mean, they're pretty, the guitar pretty much sound metal. Outstanding, I have to say. Yeah. yeah, yeah, their guitar tone is is incredible on these first few, and and I think you're tough. It's kind of analogous to the you know in a way to. Uh, too Fast for Love, because it's such a heavy, heavy song. And I remember hearing that. I never had heard Tell the World, even though we'll talk about that. That would that was the first thing Rat ever put on a record, really, other than some 
early singles uh, that was on the Metal Massacre uh, album that Metallica first debuted on. Um, put out by, I believe, Metal Blade. I might get that wrong. Uh, Brian Slagle or whatever his name is, who put out all that great stuff and still still going today. Um, but anyways, I never heard that, but I heard you think you're uh, you think you're tough. Right. So. You know, like I said, I was turning around from metal, but then I remember around and around coming out. And of course, we all saw the video. Uh, and again, I just couldn't ignore the fact that it was like one of the catchiest things I'd ever heard. I mean, just melodically, you know, we'll talk about this song a lot because it really is the standout here, yeah. even though I love, you know, I'm just going to make no bones about it. I like everything on this album pretty much but i remember the video how could you not right it's part of this whole series of videos that was coming out kind of like with twisted sister and van halen hot for teacher where they're very comedic and you know you can even throw some of the zz top stuff in here where people were trying to make videos with more of a plot line and this one's famous because it has milton burl playing multiple characters including a character in drag and a you know an old butler who's a fan of rat and it's got this whole story and we'll talk about that but, um, you know, I remember Wanted Man and uh, I, I never saw Back for More back in the day. I only saw it recently. Like Jeff's like, hey, you know, check out the video for Back for More. I had never seen this one back in the day. I don't remember seeing it. And I, and they also made a video for You Think You're Tough that has a lot of, um, yes, you know, kind of um, cameos in it. And I'd never seen that back in the day either. But that you know, they had sort of re-released that. They didn't really re-release it. They have a weird relationship with the EP, which I'll get into. Um, but anyways, uh, you know, I remember laughing at the Wanted Man video. We're going to talk about the videos a bit. Uh, so yeah, I remember that. And I remember Lay It Down coming out. And, you know, it's hard to ignore that fucking riff. It's such an immortal riff. It's so complex and weird, even though the song's kind of more simple in some ways. That guitar riff is so interesting. Yeah. And, uh, oh yeah, you're in love. One of the best songs ever by Rat. Uh, and of course, I remember the video, right? Because of the Playmate, you know, I was like, oh, that looks familiar. Uh, you know, from uh, my days of of uh, kind of borrowing, quote unquote, my stepdad's Playboys, I remembered Marianne Gravatt. Um, and, you know, again, I thought these songs were kind of dumb and silly, but, you know, when they came on MTV, I didn't turn the station. You know, I was kind of, liking this in spite of my taste changing you know i was listening to shit like elvis costello and the replacements and rem and prince and you know stuff i thought was just better or classic rock you know pink floyd i was really into pink floyd at this time so i was just not thinking this was worth my time dancing undercover um you know i thought this was the stupidest and back then i used the term gayest i know not correct but that's the way i thought then i have since become more enlightened uh title for an album ever and the fact that they just had their these gloss you know these black and white photos of them um you know it's funny though because you know prince had come out with a song called dancing undercover i would have thought it was fine so i don't know why i i was so uh biased against rat but i don't remember paying attention to any of these videos at the time well steven Kersey uh, and, and prince shopped at the same stores maybe to different effects oh yeah i mean we'll talk about that if Piercy, he looks like prince kind of yeah. you yeah. know he's got that kind of that kind of sweep of the hair is is similar to what prince was doing uh reach for the sky i just remember way cool junior and thinking god this is the dumbest thing ever uh that's about it for my history with rap before i kind of met jeff uh you know, the one other thing I will say in college is uh, one of the first people I met is my good friend, Dennis. Um, Jeff knows him as well. And Dennis was into this, into rap. 
he was into Rat and Def Leppard because of the melodicism involved. You know, he, he he was one of the first people I knew who had hysteria, actually. And this was when hysteria, they'd just come out with women and it wasn't selling well, you know, because hysteria was a slow builder. And then it became eventually just this blockbuster, one of the biggest selling albums of all time. But I remember him being into it and like playing me animal for the first time and, you know, talking about how melodic it was and how he was surprised that it wasn't doing well. But he had talked about rap because he loved rap because, again, they're so melodic, which we'll talk about. Um, he had seen them and he talked about how Stephen Piercy's banter was so gross, <laughs> like because it was all about the women in the audience, uh, something we'll address. Uh, and he he was saying like. I remember his quote that Piercy said is Stephen Piercy said, Hey, I can smell it out there. Yeah. He's, Gross. He's, he was taking uh, notes from the uh, Paul Stanley playbook of stage band. Yeah. Again, another person he kind of resembles, right? Like yeah. you pointed out to me before. Um, and then of course I, you know, once I, once I met Jeff, he had all these records that uh, Jeff had a lot of this kind of genre, you know, he had all the Motley Crue and um, this stuff. And I had kind I was kind of turning my nose up at this, but at the same time, I was kind of curious. Cause I was like, you know, I remember some of these songs like you're in love and lay it down and especially round and round. I remember how catchy they were. So I made a little tape compilation of this stuff. That's when I first heard, I want a woman. And I just played it over and over again. It's so catchy to me. Um, but again, I, I didn't really listen to out of the cellar in depth. I just kind of plucked out the hits, you know, back for more wanted man round and round. Um, and I would only listen to the album in depth later uh, and come to like all of the tracks on it. So, you know, in preparation for this, I've re-listened re to just the whole catalog of Rat, including the, like the 90s stuff, which is pretty boring. And, and even the, the 2010 comeback album, Infestation. And um, I really think that out of, out of the cellar is this classic. I think it's uh, I put it up there with Too Fast for Love and you know, shout at the devil, maybe even more than shout at the devil. I think it's, I think there are great moments on the other three records produced by Bo Hill. Uh, Detonator is produced by um, Desmond Child, and it really sounds like a Desmond Child record. It doesn't sound like rat songwriting. Uh, but, you know, I'll talk about why I think Out of the Cellar is special. Um, and, you know, I listened to some of the other Perry stuff, some of the early Mickey Rat stuff, which we'll talk about in the history. But I, I just really didn't think, um, you know, I, I really didn't think much of the other stuff besides a few moments. So anyway, you know, as far as the zeitgeist goes for this, we, you know, if you really want an in-depth history of, of the Sunset Strip, you can listen to our Motley Crue episode. We're just going to touch on that because it's really kind of the same thing. It's it's that whole transition from Van Halen as the ultimate groundbreakers, which and Van Halen plays a direct role in the story of Piercy and Rat, um, to Quiet Riot, to Motley Crue, and then to the other bands like Rat. And Dokken also plays a role here. They they actually started pretty early. Um and Dawkin, you know, they were in the scene in the 70s. Uh, and Dawkin also has a direct role to play because they had a member, Juan Crozier, 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 who's the bassist of Rat for most of their uh, tenure or whatever. Um, he was he was a member of Dawkin kind of at the same time. He couldn't really break away from Dawkin. He was kind of hedging he his bets. He couldn't it sounded break the like. chains. Couldn't break the chains. That's right. Uh, and then there's this whole San Diego scene, too, uh, that included um, 
you know, members of Rough Cut, who would also be members of Mickey Rat and Rat, and then also Jakey e. Lee, who would be a member of Mickey Rat for a time and would go later to play with Ozzy and with uh, Badlands. But I think as far as the zeitgeist, the influences, it's, you know, I listened to, I didn't mention this in my personal history, but in preparation for this, I did listen to Stephen Piercy's audiobook of his uh, book, Sex, Drugs, Rat, and Roll, that was written in like 2011, I believe. <laughs> and it's so funny but to not me. By and it's, him. I mean, he didn't write it. Well, he did. It's a ghost written, but yeah. you, you could tell, you know, I will say there, it's definitely has some hallmarks of his personality because he constantly refers to trim, you know, to, to getting, getting, you know, quote unquote girls or pussy as it were. He's like, we trip, you know, we really shook the trim tree or there was strange trim and trim, 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 trim. It's like every other word is trim. And, and it seems like, and I have, I'll have some things to say in my eval about band, guys that get into music just to get girls and don't care as much about the music and how that affects their output because it really, he rarely talks about his influences. He'll t I'll talk about a little bit of their influences in a minute, but I just want to talk a little bit about the context. So the other context is new wave of British heavy metal, because I think when hair metal first started out, as we talked about with Motley Crue and maybe with Dawkins and maybe with Rat, it was a lot heavier than it would become, you know, bands like Poison are really just like we talked about the Bay City Rollers. It's very light pop, um, you know, and there were other bands like Guns N' Roses and Cinderella that were more blues oriented, more classic rooted in classic rock. But the early hair metal Tesla. was very metal. Right. Yeah. And I think Rat is especially like that EP is fucking heavy. You know, it, it sounds like a new wave of British heavy metal, like underground band to me. And even the um, even though um, out of the cellar is very produced, it's it's more akin to that. Especially, I would say the pop metal that was really kind of, in a way, started by Judas Priest. You know, even though Judas Priest was heavy, they started doing like "Living After Midnight," which is basically a fucking pop song, right? Yeah. It's an arena rock song, and I think that influenced this band a lot. I mean, they do call out Judas Priest, and you know, with Warren Diamartini, he's a pure metal guitarist, even though Rat is trying to be melodic and commercial and appeal to women you know they still have that they're rooted in metal and i kind of think it's akin to the scorpions where they have a lot of catchy melodicism but they're still somewhat heavy and then def leppard of course which is the ultimate in pop i mean they kind of are the mostly credited with creating pop metal with pyromania especially um and i think there there's definitely an influence there but as far as direct influences the the members of the band, I tried to figure out what these were based on Stephen uh, uh, Piercy's audiobook, but also like YouTube videos of interviews. And it was really hard to get a straight answer, but I'll just list some of the ones they call out directly. Now, Piercy Hendrix, uh, Led Zeppelin was a huge influence for him. He was like an early fan. I mean, he's he was a little older. By the time Rat was, you know, getting signed and stuff, he was in his late 20s. So, you know, when he was a teenager, in the early 70s, Led Zeppelin was the biggest band of the world. So he was, you know, collecting bootlegs and was a huge fan, even though how much Led Zeppelin do you really hear in Rat? Not a whole lot, right? No. Um, and then Blue Oyster Cult, which again, you don't hear much of them. Now, Van Halen was a direct influence and almost like mentors to the band. And I think, you know, because of their founding of the L.A. scene, it's hard to ignore them as an influence. And, you know, obviously, Warren Martini was listening. You know, there's no doubt there. Well, all yeah, these guys, all these shredders well. were. I'll talk about. 
Yes. Yeah, all these shredders were, right? Yeah. And Jakey Lee as well, right? Who played with the early versions. And then Motley Crue, direct influence on the whole scene uh, of everybody. And they were also colleagues and, and friends. Now, uh, Robin Crosby, his main influence is he calls out again Hendrix and ZZ Top. And, you know, this was, you know, he loved Billy Gibbons playing, even though it's hard to actually tell what's Robin Crosby and what's Martini. I think a lot of the more metallic solos are Martini, but there's parts where they play kind of a Judas Priest, like, like tete-a-tete kind of K.K. Downing, uh, you know, and um, Glenn Tipton kind of do, you know, they kind of have duels. And, but it's hard to tell which one is which. And I think D. Martini kind of takes Lizzie, over. Uh, Brian Robertson and uh, Scott, what's his name? Uh, Scott Gorham. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah they definitely. Uh, definitely. I mean, that's like the foundation, right? Yep. So, uh, yeah. And I think, uh, sorry, got lost here. Yeah. And he, he mentions Judas Priest, Van Halen, and Warren D. Martini. You know, all they mention in the Wikipedia about him is Cream. That's the first song he learned how to play. But, you know, the Eddie Van Halen influence is obviously overwhelming. But that's the zeitgeist. If you want more of an in-depth history of the L.A. scene, we go really in-depth on our Motley Crue epic episode on Too Fast for Love. I don't think we need to replay that stuff here. But you, you guys, you know, we'll probably, you know, as we do bands like Guns N' Roses and who knows what else we'll do in this scene. Well, we could talk more about the L.A. scene and how it changed. But yeah, let's go into the history. So obviously, you know, one thing that's interesting about this band is they do, we'll talk about this because I know this is Jeff's favorite when there's spinoff bands where one member, you know, kind of, it's almost like a cover band. We'll talk about that. There's a lot of legal infighting and rat, but let's face it, this is Stephen Piercy's band. I mean, if you look at the history, it's his band. He started it. Um, He's the consistent, only consistent member throughout its tenure. Um, so we'll focus on Steve, Stephen Percy a little bit here. He was born in um, July of 1956 in Long Beach, California. You know, his uh, his childhood had some interesting moments that I think uh, are of significance for the future of the rat history. Um, you know, he first his first music was Led Zeppelin. He heard it from like one of his older sister's boyfriends. He'd also studied karate. I think this is just important because there are there is a lot of high kicking in the rap videos. Kind some of the we'll talk about videos that later. Yeah. Um, and he, it's also important because his dad was a junkie who actually died when he was like in his early teens mm. from heroin. So that will come to uh, play a part. He was also into um, before he was really into music. He was into top fuel racing, and he worked actually in a pit crew for a local racer uh, when he was fourteen. And Top Fuel is now his vanity record label he has. So he named it that. So he's always been into racing. He moved to uh, his family, moved to San Diego at about this time. And right after he moved, he got into this massive bike accident um, so bad that his legs were shattered. And he was in the hospital for six months, wow. which is nuts. Um, and he, of course, was on morphine a lot of the time. And he would he would supplement his morphine with weed and weed would be something he would be completely addicted to and later heroin. So I think that's, that's significant, but most importantly, this is where he first learned how to play guitar. And we'll talk about his guitar skills in a bit. (laughs) Um, Right. And interestingly enough, he also went to, um, for a brief time, he went to Claremont high school, which we talked about in our episode 20 fast times at Ridgemont high, because that was the high school that inspired uh, Cameron Crowe's book and film uh, fast times at Ridgemont high. Yep. 
So, but he, he quickly took the GED because he was kind of hobbling around on crutches and he kind of just asked his mom if he could just quit. He didn't really give a shit about school anyway. So his music career started around this time. He joined a band called Fire Dome in 1973, which included two other figures that would be minor L.A. Sunset Strip figures. Uh, Chris Hager, who would later go on to play in Rough Cut, and Tommy Asakawa, who would play not only with um, Ro- in Ro- with Robin Crosby and a few San Diego bands, but another band called Warrior that released one kind of, I think, self uh, kind of vanity uh press record uh in in the 80s they really they didn't really uh, do anything but um they they then changed their name uh piercy you know using his wit came up with the brilliant crystal pistol uh spelled p-y-s-t-a-l um asakawa i think uh couldn't deal with the name and quit yeah uh, to go join robin crosby in another band so Piercy and Hager then went on to form a band called Mickey Rat, and this was named after an indie comic. That's definitely going to be one of our clues. Uh, it's, a, the, it's a porno the, comic, isn't it? I think it's one of these adult comics, kind of like Fritz the Cat. Yeah. I don't know if it's porno or not. I, I I was trying to look for pictures because I'm like, okay, we'll put this up as an Instagram clue for sure. It'll probably be one of the later ones because yeah. I think anyone who knows about rock would guess this or, yeah. you know, that it's Mickey Rat. So at this time, guitarist Robin Crosby was also in the San Diego scene. So, so Mickey Rat started playing. They were playing small uh, clubs at first and mostly like back, you know, backyard parties, kind of like Motley Crue and Van Halen started out as. Um, and Robin Crosby was playing around this time and he played in, in the bands Metropolis with uh, Tommy Asakawa, as we mentioned, and a few other bands, Paramore, McCarty, <laughs> uh, Excalibur, with, starting with X. Uh, phenomenon, Secret Service, and Mac Mita. And then, um, yeah, they became friends, Piercy and Crosby. And Crosby is this crazy looking dude because he is a giant. It's funny. I, I remember, Jeff, we were kind of trading footage of Rat, and I showed you that Japanese uh, special Rat was on where the hosts are all wearing rat ears because Rat was pretty popular in Japan, as were a lot of these kind of image bands. And um, it's funny because they show them all standing together. And of course, the Japanese people are really short. And Robin Crosby is like, he just looks like a freak because he's like six foot four. Five just or think, six even, I think taller, yeah. Yeah, he's super tall. Um, so they became friends. And it's funny because already uh, in high school, Crosby was dating Tawny Katane, who would later feature in our story and actually become pretty famous in her own right. Uh, you know, you probably know her most from the White Snake videos because she was with David Coverdale, but she's also in Bachelor Party and a bunch of other stuff. And 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 many appearances in rehab across the. Southern oh country. yeah, and she's passed away. Um, yeah. So both her and Robin are passed away, as we'll talk about in the future of the history. So there's this whole San Diego scene, um, and Mickey Rat played, and there were some lineup changes, and eventually. Uh, you know, they played with other bands in the scene. One of them was called Teaser that featured a, a young guitar god, Jakey e. Lee, who would later play with Ozzy and Badlands, as I mentioned. So in 1977, you know, they'd been playing around for a while. Piercy had this epiphany when he went to L.A. He heard this rumors of this great band in L.A. called Van Halen. And he went to uh, see them at the Whiskey A Go-Go. And he actually came early so he could meet them. And he smoked a joint with David Lee Roth and then talked with Eddie about guitar technology because he played guitar and we'll talk about his skills. <laughs> Maybe not so great, but he knew about equipment and stuff. So they kind of nerded out together and, and 
they kind of would become friends, um, as I'll talk about a little bit. But but, you know, basically he, he saw them. He was blown away by them, as most people who had seen them as this time were. And he was kind of pushing uh, Chris Hager and the other guys in Mickey Rat to relocate to the Sunset Strip. Um, and uh, at any rate, so Mickey Rat uh, would go through various lineup changes. Eventually, Jake E. Lee would join them. Uh, Chris Hager was there. Um, you know, he would later join Rough Cut. Um, a bunch of guys, uh, Bob DeLillis and bassist Tim Garcia and Dave Jellison, drummers John Turner and Bob Eisenberg. It's so funny, these early L.A. bands, they just swapped members. And, you know, even though this is still San Diego. And you can you can actually find some Mickey Rat stuff on YouTube. It's pretty rough sounding, but you can kind of hear the beginnings. And some of the songs you'll you'll recognize from being in Rat because they did, uh, you know, maintain some of these songs when they transitioned to Rat. So they eventually would move to uh, L.A. And, uh, you know, according to Piercy, they moved, uh, you know, January 1st, 1980. I'm not sure how true that is, you know, just to increase their chances of getting a, a record contract. They released a single called Dr. Rock uh, in a B-side driving on E. Don't know what that means. Uh, this is right. before ecstasy. So no idea. Hmm. But you can listen to this. It's not that great, but you can listen to it on YouTube. So they started you know, they, they went to Los Angeles and, and Piercy talks about this whole hierarchy of the clubs. Like you, he wanted to go play the whiskey right away, but you couldn't do that. Um, so he played the lowest rung of the clubs was Gazari's, which we mentioned in our Motley Crue episode. And obviously if we do a Van Halen episode, which is bound to happen, we'll talk about it then as well. Cause that's where Van Halen got their start. Then the Roxy is the next tier, then the Troubadour. And finally at the top was the whiskey a go-go. Um, so Mickey Rat obviously started playing like weeknights at Gazari's. And in 1981, the band shortened its name to Rat, spelled R-A-T-T, and Piercy created a logo, which I think is a pretty cool logo. It's actually pretty iconic. Um, but Hager and bassist, uh, their bassist at the time, Matt Thor, um, you know, ended up quitting and then eventually the whole band quit. So it was just Piercy. And that's when Robin Crosby finally, who had also relocated to L.A. and was playing with bands, had joined the band. Um, they were able to find a guitarist through Jakey e. Lee uh, named Warren D. Martini, who was also in. Uh, he was also uh, from San Diego. He's playing in a band called Plague. Um, and he actually lived with Jack Jakey e. Lee for a short time, who taught him how to play all the songs of Mickey Rat and Rat. So Rat would uh, recruit. Bassist Gene Hunter, uh, who was also from Jakey e. Lee's band Teaser, and drummer um, Kurt Meyer uh, to record a song called Tell the World, which would later appear on the Rad EP. And this was featured on the first Metal Massacre compilation that also was the first thing to feature Metallica. They The, the, the song Hit the Lights was on there. Mm. And so... Um, they were able to get a pretty established drummer and Bobby Blotzer. He was playing with this... Uh, this guitarist, Vic Vergiat. I've never heard his stuff, but he had been playing for a while. And then bassist Juan Crozier, who had, who was actually playing with Dawkins, and he continued to kind of moonlight with Dawkins and Rat. He would play in between the bands. He was kind of hedging his bets, as we mentioned before. Um, he was a really experienced bass player. So the band was pretty musically solid. I mean, a lot of good musicians. Um, and they had, you know, started rising up in the L.A. scene. And, and Stephen Piercy tells a lot of gross stories in this book. And one of them is how he got the uh, 
uh, how he got the band to be able to play at the whiskey. Finally, he basically would go see this woman uh, who was the who would, who was the manager, and he played her the tape. But then she insisted that he allow her to give him blowjobs in order to play. So I guess Stephen Piercy was just so hot. I mean, I guess he is. You know, he did get a lot of, of women or whatever. But it's like this is just so disgusting. Like there's this whole uh, quid pro quo where I guess uh, you know she. And, and of course, pleasuring her was not not involved at all, mm. you know, and he was just talking about how this was so terrible to him or whatever. Uh-huh. Another story is that Wendy Dio, you know, who, who we talked about in our Dio episode, Dio's wife was trying to expand her management career beyond just the band. Dio was trying to manage bands. And so she wanted to manage Rat, and she had loaned them some money. But I guess, according to Stephen Piercy, he had to go out with her. Like she took him to a play and was like trying to like, I he guess. He had have to give a, her blowjobs or. Yeah. Like he, she was trying to have an affair with him and he was like, he was like, no, no way. And whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, high, and high, high quality uh, person. Yeah. So, so she has supposedly came with a bodyguard and tried to, tried to get him to give her money, but then the whole members of rat kind of intimidated the bodyguard. Like and, in wanted man. Oh, dude, we'll talk about it. They're a gang, dude. The Brat Gang. Yeah. It's your neck, brother. Yeah. Well, I could see how Robin Crosby might be intimidating. Yeah. But I don't I don't know about the others. <laughs> so anyway, they they at this time they started coming up with an image, right? Because they saw how Motley Crue had this incredible image. Although Motley Crue was very metal at this time, they were completely leathered out. They wouldn't kind of become clammier. But Rat was one of the first bands, I think, to take that kind of scarf, you know, that Steven Tyler Aerosmith scarf kind of glam image and really play it up. And they they decided to come up with this image they called uh, either Cement Pirates or New Wave Swashbucklers. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because you can find pictures of Robin Crosby wearing the total Seinfeld puffy shirt during this time, dude. They're, they look, you you can see early uh, images of Rat like on stage and their outfits are fucking ridiculous. I think this is when Stephen Piercy got his Prince image. Yeah. You know, um, maybe even before Prince was well known. He, he had like that bandana and he had the kind of hair off to the side and then he was wearing kind of gauzy shirts and, you know... Um, high boots and stuff. I think they were influenced a little bit by Adam and the Ants. And and Stephen Piercy also was a huge fan of Duran Duran. And especially if you watch Planet Earth, the neuromanic and rat image isn't that different. You know, it's (laughs) it's kind of close. He's wearing a puffy shirt Piercy is in like the, I think. Lay it it down. down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At any rate, so in July of 1983, um, you know, Rat had started uh, playing bigger and bigger venues. They, They were starting to get noticed around town. And Rat, around 1983, they had met Marshall Burl, who was Milton Burl, uh, comedian Milton Burl's nephew. And he had a production company called Time Coast Music, and he signed as their manager, right? And they also signed to his label to produce an EP, and that's when we get the Rat EP. And this EP was uh, released in mid-1983, and it immediately generated a buzz, and it ended up selling 300,000 copies. Um, also got radio play. Uh, I think this EP is fucking amazing. It's it's really good. I mean, you know, the the standout tracks like Back for More and You Think You're Tough and another one called Sweet Cheater, which is really heavy, are really great. Um, and it's kind of more like New Wave of British Heavy Metal. I think it's very metal. 
And uh, famously, the cover photo is actually of Robin Crosby's girlfriend, Tani Katane's Lake. She was moved to L.A. as well with him, and she was becoming a model and kind of getting a lot of work uh, because of her looks. And uh, cover photographer Neil Slauzauer, who would photograph, who would also do the covers for uh, Out of the Cellar, which we'll talk about, and then Invasion of Your Privacy, um, he had this idea of throwing live rats at her legs. And that's the cover. There are actually real rats on her legs. And it's just her legs, right? Um, also, we should note that the European version of the EP actually also featured an early version of You're in Trouble. The American version didn't have that. It was just six songs. And we also mentioned that You Think You're Tough got regular airplay on KLS and KMET. I think we should play this song. Let's play a clip from this. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty great. Yeah. I think um it's I've always wondered why they included Back for More and You're in Trouble on the first album but not this, but I'll have something to say about when we talk about the actual album. So on the strength of this, they actually got signed to Atlantic Records. Um and you know, we'll talk more about the detail so so they and they recorded an album called Out of the Cellar, right? So we're, we'll talk more about the, this album in detail when we go over the songs. We're going to do kind of a walkthrough of this, uh, where we go over the songs and we kind of give our thoughts on the songs and we talk a little bit more about how they were made. But, um, you know, the material used was a mixture of Mickey Rat, uh, especially some old Robin and some old Robin Crosby songs that Rat had included that were from his previous bands. And then a couple of newer tracks, but we should go over the personnel on the album. So by this time it was Stephen Piercy on lead vocals, Robin Crosby on lead and rhythm guitar. And again, which leads are his are hard to say. Warren D. Martini on and backing vocals, Warren D. Martini on lead and rhythm guitar, backing vocals, Ron Croce on bass guitar and doing the majority of the backing vocals. Yeah. Actually, he had he was really known for being a great backup singer. And then Bobby Blotzer on drums. Uh, and so this was the personnel, the recording, um, you know, again, we'll, we'll go into a little more detail on individual songs with this. But basically, the band originally wanted producer Tom Allen, who was really well known. He had just produced British Steel for Judas Priest, as well as Unleashed in the East, which is uh, Unleashed in the East is one of those albums that is kind of like Alive 2, where it's really unleashed in the studio. So we could say he did quite a bit. And it's yeah. a classic, so he did quite a bit on that. Def Leppard's On Through the Night. And he also had a very distinguished career as a sound engineer on tons of albums um, in the 70s. You can look this up, and uh, most notably, the first three Sabbath albums. So they wanted him. But Doug Morris, head of Atlantic Records, insisted that they use Bo Hill. Uh, who had almost no experience. If you look at his experience, he had almost none. And the band was really skeptical of him and any of the ideas he had. Um, and we'll talk about that specifically when it comes to the album's most significant song, Round and Round. Um, but, you know, 
I think he did a fantastic job. This is a great production work. It's not quite like Mutt Lang level of epicness, but I think it's about as good as it could be. Uh, you he know, made, he really he proved made them himself. sound as good as they were ever going to sound. Let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, he really did. And and especially with something like Piercy's vocals, where, you know, we talk about how if you listen to Rat live footage, he did not have a lot of vocal power. He has a cool sound, as, as we'll talk about, a very unique sounding voice. But he's not like this folk, you know, operatic singer. He's not an, a real singer in a way. Yeah, and I, so in a lot of ways, he's not a real singer. He just has a good sound. I agree. And I think he owes that a lot of that to Bo Hill. Yeah. He must, right? Listen yeah. to this album and listen to the live stuff, and yeah, you'll see. Sure. Or even the later Rats stuff. Um, so he he really like came to like Robin Crosby a lot. I think most people who ran into Crosby, even though Crosby was a crazy uh, addictive personality and would get more and more into drugs, as we'll talk about as the history goes on. Uh, most people said he was just this great guy. And he really he really enjoyed working with Crosby. He said that that Bobby Blotzer was the worst person to work with. He said he, he described him as very difficult, in quotes, and my least favorite guy to spend any time with. Wow. <laughs> Blotzer was just a, uh, sounds like a dick, and we'll talk about that more. Uh, the budget for the album was 125K. It took about a month to record the album. Uh, it was uh, Hill engineered the album, mixed it, did all of that, uh, mostly at Sound City. And he was using the board that Dave Grohl now owns that's in the Sound City documentary. And Rat's in that documentary as well. And uh, we at this point like to introduce Dave Grohl joining the podcast because he's going to. Oh, no, just kidding. But he probably yeah. would because he's. Yeah, talks exactly. About, uh, Questlove could talk about Bobby Blotzer's contribution, right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, they both could. Um, and it's interesting because, as I mentioned, Juan Crochet did the backup vocals, but also Bo Hill did a lot of the oh, backup wow. vocals, too. So he really jumped in. The cover photo, again, we have Neil Zlauzor again. And this one is, of course, a full body shot of Tawny Katane kind of as this predatory sex rat uh, crawling across the cellar. Uh, kind of an iconic cover. The album was released February 17th, 1984. The reception was critically generally positive. I think most people thought it was solid, even people who weren't in the metal. Uh, it would eventually become Rat's biggest selling album, three times platinum, number seven on the Billboard charts. Uh, the album had uh, four singles, Round and Round, which was a number 12 hit, um, and number four on the mainstream rock, rock chart and number four on the Canadian chart. Uh, Back for More was number 27 on the main. Uh, rock chart. Wanted Man actually was number 87 on Billboard and number 38 on Main Rock. And The Lack of Communication was released at Didn't Chart. And there were videos for uh, the first three songs. And we'll talk about the videos when we talk about the songs, because we got to jump into some of these videos because they're pretty noteworthy. Now, just to, before we get into the album, let's just do a quick overview of the, of the post-history. So 84 tour. I mean, Stephen Piercy talks a lot about the touring and it's almost all about sex, mm. um, you know, he, drugs. He was and, drinking and, and heavily. Trim. A lot of trim. A lot of trim, like shaking the trim tree, bro, <laughs> you know. We could really shake the trim tree now that we were popular, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So he talks about how he would get um, some of the roadies to like go and uh, find the hottest girls and give them backstage passes. And he would take pictures and write them, their number down. And when he'd come back into town, he would call them. It was just like, he would talk about how he had like sex three times a day, he would have sex with the woman in the bus before the show. 
sex with the woman during the drum solo. So he was always trying to get, like, even if Bobby didn't want to play a drum solo, he said he was always trying to get him to a solo so he could go either drink and smoke weed or, you know, the band could party or he could go have sex and then he would have a girl after the show. I mean, it was just like constant. The book is so tedious because it's just these stories repeated over and over again. Very little about like, oh, well, how did we come up with the lyrics for Wanted Man or whatever? Nothing about that. How did we come up with this guitar part or this vocal melody? Almost nothing about that. Yeah, it shows you, to your point about the emphasis of music in the whole thing. And I I think, you know, like you also said uh, before, once you've heard one of these stories about like groupies or these metal sluts or whatever, like you've heard them all. And we've already heard all these stories. We already heard it with Motley Crue. We've already heard it with Led Zeppelin, frankly. Like they're not that interesting. Yeah. And it's like, it becomes like uh, almost like an obligatory thing they have to do like a job. And it seems like it's tiring and tedious and where, you know, being on the road, it seems really tedious. Terrible. But I think actually these, constant dopamine thrills with drugs and sex it just probably gets boring after a while it just would see you know and just oh it just seems kind of gross and i don't know there's some more story i might tell the, i'm not sure i'm going to tell this one story because it's so bad I, I i feel weird about even talking about it, but we'll get to that that's that's later in now, the history now you're gonna have to tell the story oh, i'll tell it so anyway right. they did something weird too they they basically on the strength of um the first album they re-released the ep but again, this EP is so hard to find now, and it's not on Spotify. It's on YouTube, but um, it's weird that they would do this. Like, why not save this song, You Think You're Tough? Like, since they had used the other songs from the EP, why not just save this for the next album? Because it's like, part of it, I think, is because it doesn't really sound like what they were turning into, and it wouldn't really fit. But they released this video of You Think You're Tough and re-released the EP, and during the during this time, you know, of course, Crosby got money. He bought his mom and him matching Porsches. I'm not Crosby, sorry. Piercy got money. He bought his mom and, and himself matching Porsches, and he bought a home in Laurel Canyon. And that's where um, Eddie Van Halen lived with his wife, Valerie Bertinelli. And they became again. They got reacquainted. And I guess the story, uh, Piercy said he would keep vodka at his place for Eddie, and Eddie would ride a little moped over and just drink because Valerie didn't want him drinking. Yeah. Um, yeah, we know he drank heavily. Yeah, uh, probably you think he was true. At that time, too. Cigarettes? Yeah, he was a he was a heavy smoker. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when joking. I saw he he like he was like Rod Serling, you know, in terms of smoking. <laughs> well, when I saw him play in 1997 with Van Halen Mach Three, which was so bad, although he was still great on guitar, he looked awful. Yeah. He was like just wasting away, and he had like a a, a cigarette and like his guitar nut. And he would just pull the cigarette yeah, and smoke and just. Lot the greatest solo you ever heard um at any rate uh crosby at this time was really going nuts he was uh he'd started doing heroin and just partying all the time he was still kind of showing up for practice and and stuff at this time it didn't quite get to the point it would piercy was doing a lot of weed and alcohol and started doing cocaine they they went into the studio and uh, again with bo hill and recorded their second album invasion of your privacy this was released in 1985 i I mentioned Marianne Gravatt. She's on the album cover. Again, Slozauer did this photo. Um, the album was also a success, two times platinum. Again, number seven on the charts. Um, the first single, Lay It Down, was a top 40 hit, just hitting the top 40 at number 40. You're in Love was not as successful at number 89. And then they had a final single, What You Give is What You Get, which again, 
if you listen to this song, what you give is what you get. You'll hear the problem with this album. It's, uh, you know, not quite up to uh, out of the cellar. Although there was another one called You Should Know By Now that I think was a natural single. I'm not sure why they didn't release it. Um, videos for Lay It Down. Uh, you know, uh, again, this video is another kind of starts out goofy with a kid's party and a fantasy. And then, of course, we have, a, you know, basically just a hot woman walking around, Marianne Gravatt. Uh, You're in Love, which is more of a performance video, and What You Give is What You Get, which I didn't watch. I I, I guess there's a video of this. I've never seen it. I don't know if you've seen this one. No, I haven't. I don't think it was almost... I don't remember it. Yeah. Okay, at the beginning of the episode, we heard an advertisement for this tour. It was the Invasion of Your Privacy Tour. They took a young band, up-and-coming band named Bon Jovi, who would totally eclipse almost every other band in their next album, but this was still when they had uh, the minor hit Runaway. Um, they also did a Japan tour, Monsters of Rock Festival in, at Castle Donington. And this is also at the time where in LA, when they were in LA, Piercy, he had a house in Laurel Canyon, but he also would just stay in hotels all the time because he had so much money. You know, they were just rolling in it. And this is when he said Robin Crosby, who was also at the hotel, would come to his room. And in a in a kind of repeat of a uh, of a story we told uh, during the Kiss episode, Robin Crosby would just take a shit in his bathroom. Horrible. <laughs> I don't know if he read the Paul Stanley book and decided to repeat this. Uh, maybe it's true. Maybe there was just a thing with these these alcoholics and drug addicts where they just like to take shits everywhere. I don't know. Horrible. But you can imagine with Crosby being a giant guy that he was, you know. <laughs> <laughs> might have been some toilet clogging yeah totally at any rate um yeah so there's so at any rate um okay i'm gonna save the story for the next next phase which i think happened during the next tour the the gross story but anyway they followed that up with dancing undercover uh released in august of 86 again that's bow hill the album was platinum single platinum so you could see the sales going down as Rat Goes On uh, was number 26. They had um, two singles, Dance, which was only made it to number 59, uh, and then Body Talk, which didn't chart at all. Uh, they had videos for Dance, Body Talk, and Slip of the Lip. Body Talk was also featured in a fight scene in the Eddie Murphy film, Golden Child. Yeah. <laughs> if you remember that, maybe we'll do that movie. Very not good. Very weird movie, not great. Um, and they had a tour with Poison. So they brought Poison on the road as their opening act. And this was when before Poison really broke in 87. Uh, but during this tour, there was a story where, I mean, this is like sexual harassment. This is almost like they could go to jail for this. So Piercy says him and a roadie had come across this woman who was lying drunk in front of one of their doors. And they basically stuffed a com, uh, uh, like a condom up her ass as a kind of joke. <laughs> like, so she would wake up with a condom in her ass. I mean, this is like prosecutable shit. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, um, obviously she was so was out of it. episode of Workaholics where this was the uh, plot, but it was done to a dude for a different reason. But nevertheless, wow. yeah. Wow. But but that's pretty nuts, man. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of stories like this. And of course, they have the obligatory Sam Kinnis story. They actually have story. He has a story about being on the wild uh, thing video with Sam Kinison and Jessica Hahn and all that. Sam Kinison is someone we'll have to get to at some point. Yeah. Um, but that was during his 
super cocaine era and but they had that he has that whole joke about the guys putting their dicks and balls around his face while he's passed out and rat has some stories about that they did that to one of their assistants and ha 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 it's just it's just like so many of these stories again no like how did we come up with the cool beginning to body talk or you know what do the lyrics to body talk mean you know or whatever it's like i know it's stu- a stupid they're stupid lyrics but it's like nothing about the music so again, they took a while to come up with their next album, uh, Reach for the Sky. It was released in November of 1988. And the reason is they went with another producer, Mike Stone. And when they took the tapes of this back to Atlantic president, Doug Miller, he's like, no, we got to bring Bo Hill back because this is garbage. So they brought Bo Hill in again. And again, Bo Hill delivered for them a platinum album, not double platinum, just platinum again. Number 17 on the charts. Um Singles were Way Cool Junior, which was number 75, and I Want a Woman, which didn't chart at all. Uh, Videos for the same songs. And again, uh, Crosby at this point is really feeling outshone by Martini because Martini just keeps getting more uh, skilled. You know, he keeps practicing and he was it seemed like he was more about the music than any of them. Uh, And then Piercy and Blotzer are constantly fighting on tour and in the studio. They just didn't get along. Yeah. But then Crosby is also kind of starting to check out, you know, his drug habit is really taking over. Uh, the band waited again almost two years to release Detonator, their follow-up in August of 1990. This was co-produced by Desmond Child and his staff engineer, Arthur Payson. Uh, the album only went gold, number 23. This this album is like complete hair metal. I think by this time, Rat had, had abandoned all metal. And I mean, Reach for the Sky is kind of that post hysteria kind of pop sound i mean there's the kind of weird intro to i want a woman that almost sounds like are you excitable from hysteria you know it's got a lot of uh more kind of production it's it's heavily produced but this album just sounds like hair metal like love and use a dirty job i mean that's pure desmond child um the singles were love and use a dirty job and shame 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 they had these really elaborate videos for these songs where they spent like over a million dollars on the shame 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 video with like a model of a whole plane and like all these special effects but i mean obviously this was when hair metal was starting to become a little bit much and people were kind of sick of it i almost liken it to the marvel kind of phenomenon where people are getting sick of these superhero movies. It's just yeah. time for something else. And obviously the quality has gone down in these movies and it's the same with the hair metal, the whatever music was good at the beginning with the exception of maybe guns and roses, like all of this is just getting worse and worse. You have bands like slaughter and danger, danger, and they're just getting <laughs> worse and worse. Um, Striper. Crosby was barely there for these sessions. He was in rehab. Uh, his hands were swelled up. He couldn't play. Um, and, uh, but is, but even on the tour, his rehab didn't stick, you know, he was, he was, uh, constantly messing up on stage and not able to show. And I think maybe this is when he did that public, you know, that, that commercial you played, uh, where he's just fucking things up. I mean, he was just not around. Um, they also did another single that isn't on any album called nobody rides for free in a video, uh, for the point break original soundtrack in 91. I've seen this. It's pretty bad. You know, it's just not catchy. You know, I mean, I think love and use a dirty job is memorable, but in that kind of earworm way where you want to get it out of your head. But I mean, these songs just aren't, they don't even sound like the band because they're Desmond child basically. 
So Crosby finally just gives up and quits after a show in Osaka, Japan. And they briefly brought in Michael Shank Shanker to join the band. Uh, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna take one drug addict out and bring in another one who's also problematic. Uh, has got an ego, but oh well. Yeah, you know. And at this point, uh, bear, you know, almost toward the end of the tour, they had a few more shows. Piercy just quit. He just couldn't deal with Blotzer, and he's just sick of playing and burnout. So the band breaks up, and Piercy goes on to form this other project called Arcade with uh, former Cinderella drummer Fred Corey. It's very strange that in the 90s, they did this kind of thing. It's still kind of hair metal, but maybe a little more of like Guns N' Roses, maybe a little more raw. Not very good. Um, after Arcade, Piercy joins an industrial band called Zertex. Oh, man. Yeah. It's on YouTube. You can go look at it. Another band, Vicious Delight, which is kind of 90s heavy rock. You know, check this on YouTube if you're into self-punishment. This stuff is pretty fucking bad. Zertex made me laugh out loud. It's good so name. ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, the video has got like him singing and it shows words like sloth, envy. You know, it's so uh, nice. It's like, trying to be like artsy and Nine Inch Nails, but it's so, so desperate yeah, and ridiculous. Idiots instead of. Yes. Yeah. So Rat, you know, he wasn't successful with those things. And so Rat reunites in 1997, but Ron Crochier doesn't join again. Uh, they bring in Robbie Crane on bass. And they record this song, this album called Collage, which is basically a lot of old songs from Mickey Rat that are repurposed. Um, they go on a brief tour, but um, Crosby only plays on a few tracks and he's kind of in and out of the band. Um, Piercy actually has this really bad fall uh, and he busts his kneecaps. And, he, and during when he was recovering, he totally got addicted to painkillers and he started smoking heroin, too, uh, just like uh just like Crosby. So does. Yeah. he became a, a pretty much an addict for like the next five or six years. Ralph Rat gets back together in 1999 to create this fucking bizarro album. It's self-titled. And it is a really weird album. It's almost country sounding. They're trying to get back to blues, but it's almost like if you took Alice in Chains, Garth Brooks, and like, I don't know, Cinderella, with the, you know uh gypsy road and put them together as an album it's and it's you know it's one of these 50 minute slogs kind of like the motley Crue self-titled only made it to one six number 169 okay then we have robin crosby you know he's not part of the band at all anymore he's trying to like make music but he's he said something that was wrong with it he was addicted to uh, heroin he had contracted hiv through intravenous drug use uh, so he had AIDS, but interestingly enough, a lot of people with AIDS become emaciated, but he became huge. Um, he said something was wrong with his pancreas where it wasn't, was causing him not to metabolize food quite right, or it, it was like an insulin problem. Uh, he had ballooned up to 400 pounds yeah. uh, at this time. And he would die in early 2002. Very sad. Um the band would reunite in the mid-early 2000s, <laughs> bringing in the everyone's favorite replacement guitarist, John Karabi, for a, for a time and eventually uh, replacing him with Carlos Cavasso, formerly of Quiet Riot. Uh, they would get a little notoriety from that, that hat tip at, in The Wrestler um, mm -hmm. that we played at the beginning, the great film The Wrestler with uh, Mickey Rourke and Marissa Tomei. Rosetta uh, is always so good in things. She's such a great actress. Uh, she's awesome. He's yeah. really, that's like his best fucking performance too, that movie. Um, yeah, she's great. Uh, at any rate, Infestation, they got back to record Infestation in 2010. It's not, 
as bad as you would think it is. It's definitely better than their other 90s output. But it's one of these albums where they kind of have the sound right, but the songs just don't. They're just not memorable, and it's much too long. There's a couple of moments. Um, and again, Stephen's voice by this time is just ragged. It's kind of that Brian Johnson phenomenon, you know, in the later ACDC. Yeah. Really hard to listen to. He came up with this audio, you know, with his book and did a few talks. We There's this Google talk you can watch if you want, again, if you want to be really bored. Um, it's not very good. The book is okay. You know, I wish that there was more about the music and more about what went into the albums. Uh, they break up again. And band members start suing each other. And again, uh, to mention Jeff's favorite thing ever, we have we get we are treated to the Bobby Blotzer rat experience. <laughs> I'll talk about that <laughs> later. Yeah. yeah. So so again, uh, and you had some things to say about the uh, band's appearance, right? So <laughs> Piercy got clean. He got clean. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So I mean, Stephen Piercy stopped using drugs, but then he uh, contracted liver cancer and hepatitis and uh, had major surgery and with the you know, liver uh, removed and got a donor liver kind of thing situation, I think. And he does not look well. Now, he, I said he looks like a piece of beef jerky. <laughs> <laughs> and and slip Dude, is, that is killed me when I read that. that. I was laughing about that all day yesterday, man. <laughs> so funny. He does look like a piece of beef jerky. He just looks like he, he dresses like a like a biker. Um, but he just, you know, he's he's super skinny, he's all emaciated, he looks homeless, and you know, it just uh it does not look good. Bobby Blotzer, you can see videos of him. He's for his uh rat experience, he's a 65-year-old guy wearing an eyeliner, you know, heavy dude now, like you know, has kept himself in shape and it's just kind of embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Yeah, you know, all these guys adopt the same old guy fashion. They they have tons of tattoos now. Yeah. And they they wear eyeliner. I mean, he looks like Ozzy Osbourne where dressed as a woman. It's yeah. like just not he's not pretty. No. But it's like he's kind of raggedy, you know, plump old dude. And they all have these shirts like they wear this fashion that's like rock and roll fashion for old guys that's like dead birds and skulls. You've seen yeah. this shit. It's like Brett Michaels mid- from Poison, you know, is rocking that, but you know, with, with the bandana that he uses to hide his baldness. So. Yeah, I mean like handcuffs and a dead bird and some skulls and you know, uh Anyway, it, it's yeah, and a bunch of chains and leather, and it yeah, looks it, it looks like the old guy at the club. You know, it's pretty embarrassing. Um, they did a Geico commercial where the plot is this family says we have a rat problem in our house, and it's rat playing round and round in the other room. Ha ha ha. Yeah, um, yeah you you wanted to talk about Warren uh, Demartini a little yeah, bit. I I mean, I'll talk more about his guitar playing. I think we have a difference of opinion, but um, you know, Warren Demartini was a little younger than the rest of the guys, but he actually still looks, he, he looks like uh, he is in shape and looks good. You know, he's a handsome guy as Bill Gazzari would say, he's a sexy guy. It sounds like maybe he wasn't as into the drugs and he was younger than them by about, you yeah. know, six or seven years too. So yeah, he has a lot of guitar clinic videos and stuff like that, where he continues to bore uh, which I'll get into. <laughs> um, so, we'll a, we'll, we might have some contention over it. Yeah. All right. All right. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to say a couple other things. You know, Stephen Piercy's got this vanity record label. He's put out a bunch of solo albums and um, he has a, a videos of it's called Stephen Piercy TV. You can watch of his uh, 
wife, uh, you know, and his daughter or whatever, his kids and his dogs and cats and him playing guitar so badly. Um, Jeff sent me this one where it was just like he was playing guitar and it's like you he's completely out of tune and he can't even hold a chord on an acoustic guitar. It sounds like when I try to play guitar, <laughs> maybe a little better than me, but that's not saying much. Yeah, no, he clearly, he just seems out of it. I mean, like he looked, yeah. like I said, he looks like a human piece of beef jerky. He doesn't look like he knows what day it is. He's kind of like, looks well, like he's a, been through the ringer. He that's has, for sure. and he looks like it's amazing. He, he survived. He's, he's kind of like, got this Keith Richards resilience. He does. He looks like he's been through the, you know, beef renderer and he's been dried in the kiln. And that's why he looks like beef jerky. So anyway, so anyway, off, you know, as I mentioned at the start of the show, Rat has just released this max massive box set that includes CDs and some, um, you know, re vinyl remixes and stuff. And that's like, wow, this looks pretty cool with all these vine new vinyls and, uh, you know, everything's remixed. You know, if, if their if their discography were better, I would probably go for it. It's really expensive, but it's like if if everything was as good as the first album, I would do it. But unfortunately, as we'll talk about, that's not the case. But the craziest thing and the thing that pisses me off about this is the EP is not still not fucking there. Yeah, it's ridiculous. like, that's ridiculous. If you're going to have like a box set of everything, you got to have that EP. It's like critical. So it's, it's just ridiculous anyway. So let's, let's go through the album. So we're going to go into the album. We're going to play some clips of each of the songs and we're going to talk about, you know, maybe a little bit of the background of what we know, you know, there's not that much information about some of these deep cuts, but some of the more prominent songs, there's more information. So we'll talk about the background and then we'll just give our evaluation of the songs. I'm actually going to rank them. Uh, my favorites uh, as we go along, even though that could change. It goes back and forth all the time, but this is just where they stand now. So let's talk about Wanted Man, which was written by Robin Crosby. Um, oh, we should talk about this. Oh, let's just play a clip and then we'll talk about it. The opening track. All right, go. so Wanted Man, the opening track uh, written by Robin Crosby, uh, Stephen Piercy, and this other guy named Joey Cristofelli, Cristofanelli, who was in the band for like five minutes. Uh, you know, that goes to show all the kind of confusing lineup changes of the early days of Rat. Um, and so, uh, yeah, why don't why don't we talk about this? What what what's your opinion of this? And if you have anything I, I like to it. point it's out? One of, it's one of the better songs on this album, I think. It's certainly not my favorite. Um, but it's a good opener. You know, I always liked it. Um, I like it more um, having rewatched the video, um, which is is hilarious. It's a yeah, the video of this is, I think, one of the greatest videos. Uh, it's it's I love that the opening where they just come off the tour bus and there's this whole kind of opening without the music for a while. Right. Yeah. 
and they come into town and they're basically it basically they go back in time in the video or it's kind of a dream sequence it's hard yeah i think it's played as kind of a dream sequence and then you know they they get off the bus and i think crosby says oh what's this it looks like a bar and then blotzer says that's not a bar that's a saloon <laughs> and then they bust in and they see the you know all, they're basically back in the wild west and they see the um you know they see the uh the 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 dealer with the snake eyes and it's fucking marshall burl yeah <laughs> it's pretty funny he's in a couple of the videos yeah well i mean the whole thing is that they're a wanted gang right and they're fight they're, they're gonna have a gunfight with you know some old west dudes and everyone seems to be scared of them but i'm not certain that anyone would be scared of them i think that in the old west people would just think that they were ugly prostitutes you know, coming into town. <laughs> yeah, totally, man. Totally. So, but, you know, of course, you know, these dudes wearing eyeliner and makeup that, you know, oh, my God, we, we better run because uh, they're going to shoot us. So you get the idea. It's sort of like a Westworld sort of, uh, you know, shootout uh, sort of thing filmed in some ghost town in California, right? Yeah, it's kind of like they're badasses, like in, you know, Too Young to Fall in Love, the Motley Crue yeah. video, where they, they're these kabuki badasses breaking a part of Asian Village or whatever. Yeah. It's kind of similar, and they they get in a whole gunfight and it and stuff. But as far as the the music goes, um, you know, you'll notice that there's tons of electronic drums. I think it really works. Um, there's There's a few songs where they kind of give the, they have this huge gated drum song drum sound and it's kind of these electronic drums but it it kind of gives some dynamics and i think that's what this album has over the other albums is the songs are much more dynamic i think the songwriting is better but also the production is much bigger uh for the most part and uh the lyrics you know i i, I just musically i love some of the melody one of my favorite things is in the chorus where he says because i'm a, yeah. a wanted man it's like yeah. cool and yeah. And I like the the line, even though grammatically it doesn't make sense. And by the rope, you will hang. Yeah. It's your neck from this rat gang. Like, yeah. it's your neck from this rat gang. Doesn't really make sense. But I think, as we'll talk about, Stephen Piercy doesn't really care about meaning here. He's kind of just making things. I mean, it means something, but he doesn't. He just is more about how things sound. And trim. And trim, of course. They don't really talk about trim as much on this album as the later ones, but there's some. And then I just, I do love Warren's solo on this. I think it kicks ass, and I love the way that Blotzer accompanies all his solos. I think Blotzer's really good. Uh, he's a really solid metal drummer. He puts in these flourishes. But again, I don't know who's playing what, because I know that they him and Crosby trade off. But anyway, that's the first song. Let's go into song number two, You're in Trouble. Cool. So uh, I will say that Wanted Man ranks number four for me on the album. Could be most people might put it higher and put it number four. Um, but the, before I talk about You're in Trouble, let's just talk about it was written by uh, Robin Crosby again. Uh, 
this time Warren D. Martini also did some of the writing, Juan Crozier and Stephen Piercy. Yeah. So what what's your what's your opinion of this one? I like this one too. I it's not my favorite on the album. I I don't, I don't know if I've ranked these, but it, it's okay. Yeah, you don't have to rank them. I just did the, that. And it, the guitar solo on this one sounds like you know Warren D. Martini just was listening to Eddie Van Halen for four days and just cop. I mean, it sounds like an Eddie Van Halen guitar solo, but not as good. It's just it's just it's a copy of Eddie's style like all over the place. Which, by the way, I'm not. Say, like, if you're going to copy somebody, yeah, that's a great guy to copy. It just doesn't sound like his own thing. It just sounds like, you know, a cut-rate Eddie Van Halen solo uh, to me on this one. I, I, I'll talk about, I think he, there are solos that he has that I do like. I'll get to that next, in the next song. But um, this one is just kind of, it's like, yeah, it's just a bunch of, it's a bunch of shredding, but it's like, it's a bunch of, like, Eddie Van Halen outtakes, in my opinion. Yeah, I think we disagree on this. I, I do like his playing a lot. I think, it, I think, it, look, that's the genre, you know, it's like the genre is defined by Eddie Van Halen. Like what you do in a metal song in the eighties is mostly defined by him. Uh, I think, you know, obviously that's why slash, I think is a big deal to people because he kind of breaks with that whole thing, you know, yeah. but I think a lot of these bands, I mean, you look at Cinderella or yeah, like yeah. Dawkins, you know, Dawkins has George Lentz. It's kind same of the same thing, thing right? 100%. These guys are great players, right? Just from a no technical question. point of view, no question about it. Yeah. but I do think, I do like the way that, you know, it's like compare it with someone like Kirk Hammett or is Kirk Hammett. I do think Kirk Hammett has his moments. Like I love fight fire with fire solo. You know, this is obviously for another show, but I just want to talk about like how with Metallica, it's almost like they're just grafting Kirk Hammett's solos onto the song. Whereas with boring solos, songs, yeah. Warren. uh, Yeah. I I mean, especially on injustice for all, they really just seem like grafted on there, Uh, you know, but I think with Warren, they're, they're kind of organic. They, they build to something, even though, you know, Maybe they run together for some people. I don't know. But anyway, this song, I put it at number seven uh, and I really like it, but that's how much I like this record. You know, even though I put a song down at the bottom, I still think this song is fucking great. I think if this were on any of the other Rat albums, it would be like one of the best songs on the album. I love the beginning with the weird bird sounds. It's almost like the weird noises with the band kind of talking. It's kind of like the break in Welcome to the Jungle or A Whole Lot of Love. Um, Fucking, I love the slight key change where he sings and that's the price you pay to lie. It's really cool. Cause I just think the melodies on this are just so big. Like, and this song is one of them. And I like the part where he sings like, we're going to get you what you're going to do, do. We're going to get you what you're going to do like really fast. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's just cool. And then um, the lyrics again are fucking funny as hell. You're such a teaser. You give me life. I live in jungles and live with knives. <laughs> fucking <laughs> lyrics. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, so, okay. All right, here we go. The one that everyone's waiting for. Number three, Round and Round. All right. Everybody knows this one. Uh, You know, I want to talk about this because, um, you know, the band 
had written this before the EP, but they thought it was too weak to put on the EP, which is kind of crazy, right? Because yeah. I mean, it's their, let's just face it, it might be their greatest song ever. Um, you know, uh, and it's definitely their most famous song. If they're going to be remembered for anything, it's this song. Yeah. But this is where Bo Hill comes in because after his changes, the band uh, really changed their tune on this one, even though they they took a lot of convincing. Let's play that clip from Bo Hill where he talks about this. I think the best illustration of that would be on Round and Round. When when the original arrangement came around, they they had that stop right before the chorus. Da 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 boom. Round and round. And that stop just made, just drove me crazy because all the momentum and all the energy and all the forward movement of the track to try to get you to lift into the chorus just killed it for me anyway. And I could and I came up with every possible solution to those guys from an arrangement point of view. And they just they said, nope, we're leaving that hole in there. Nope, we're not doing it. And I couldn't convince them to do it. So that therein lies the mother of invention because that hole drove me so crazy. I was in the studio by myself, which I did every day. And, and I was just experimenting. And so I flipped the tape over and triggered that vocal that did that, which, which turned out to be the big, the big hook that sold the song. <laughs> but it was, it was just because they, they had refused to help me fill in that gap. Yeah. Well, yeah. So he added that dynamic, the dynamics there. I, I was trying to find, cause they played this song live before the recording. And I was trying to find the, a version of it that didn't have uh, the transition. And I just couldn't because there was the recording that I found was from early 84. And by that time it, it was already, uh, it was mid 84 or whatever, but by, by that time it was already this version and they just played it this way. But the earlier version was just, the sound was so bad. They, there was some concert in Pasadena they played in 83 and it was just so bad. You couldn't even hear it. So at any rate, um, let's talk about this song. Yeah. I, I mean, I, look, I'll talk about this in my evaluation too. As you said, this is the song everyone's going to know forever. I love the song. Of course, just like everybody else, I actually think Martini's solo here is really good. Um, I like it. it it's, it's a lot more memorable than a lot of his other stuff, in my opinion. Um, the, the um, you know, it, everything about it, I think, speaks to being one of the, you know, key songs from this, this era in terms of the hair metal and this time. Everyone knows this song. It's one of those kind of, you know, you shook me all night long sort of-esque you know, anthem sort of things from that. And this is certainly the song that people will know from this band. Um, the video was very memorable. I remember seeing that very early on as well. And, you know, of course, it stars uh, the manager's uncle, uh, uh, figurative, figuratively and literally, Milton Berle, Uncle Milty. Um, and, you know, you, you said that you had, you wanted me to ask you about an Uncle Milty story from the making of this video. Right, so we... You talked to me about the Saturday Night Live, the time you worked on Saturday Night Live, yeah, right? Yeah, so, so exactly. So um, there's a story that, uh, what's his name, Jay Moore, uh, yeah. to, who was on Saturday Night Live, uh, one of the cast members, when Milton Berle was one of the hosts. And he tells a story about how they're in a writer's room and Milton Berle would come in. You know, he's pretty old at this time. He, he just came into the writer's room and, and they're like, oh, hey, Milton, what's up? Milton Berle just like whipped out his giant, you know, sausage dog and just laid it on the table. 
didn't say anything, just like just laid it on the table, and <laughs> and they're all like, uh, uh, what, what? They're like shocked by it, and he just it's kind of shrugged his shoulders, you know, pulled, you know, threw it over his shoulder and left. And what's also funny is uh, James Jim Downey, who's a writer, uh, had a similar story where I guess he just did that to Jim Downey too. It's like just something that he would do. Um, I guess he was, you, you know, this old man was that proud of his his giant schlong that he would just go around and show it to people. And so that's what Jay Moore was talking about, um, you know, on, on that. So that was so to answer the question. No, he did not. Uh, in this case, he uh, Stephen Pierce, he doesn't talk about it. What he talks about is he asked Milton Berle if it was true that he slept. She he slept with Marilyn Monroe. I guess yeah. there's a. A rumor out there, which is weird because, you know, maybe Marilyn Monroe wanted to have sex with him because she heard rumors of his, you know, large endowment. But I mean, to me, this is like a fucking giant clown penis or something. Yeah. I mean, he's not attractive. No. But, you know, he just got he was just like, uh, you know, you asked me personal questions and then he just called them like fagolas. <laughs> like this he's like, you're a fagola or whatever. And Stephen <laughs> Pierce, he's like just laughing about it. Yeah. But Milton Berle, I mean, there's actually footage of him. There's this great channel on YouTube called Metal School, and they have a little mini documentary of Rat, and they show this footage of him being filmed during the video. So during the video, there was like a, I forget who directed the video. I wish we had that for, you know, so the, the, the podcast. But at any rate, the guy who directed the video, Milton Berle just took over and just told him what to do. And there's scenes of him in drag just yelling at this guy. And, you know, Saturday Night Live, when, when he was on, they they banned him forever after that. Not just for showing his his wiener or whatever, but because he's an asshole. Yeah, he kept he he basically whenever they were doing the skits, he would just take over and just tell them what to do. I mean, in Milton Berle, let's face it, it's not funny. Like some old comedians, like these old fucking dudes, are funny. Like Don Rickles is fucking hilarious, you know. Like yeah, but like um because he's so mean. But Milton Berle was just not. He's just like this old vaudeville shtick. You know, and even in the video, it's like, I actually think that the butler, guy who plays the butler, who's the secret rat fan who kind of secrets them into the house is funnier than Milton Berle. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Milton Berle is famous, um, you know, and maybe that's just as a cameo kind of thing. But I agree. He doesn't really add anything to the video. And, you know, his, his uh, you know, maybe difficult personality um uh, Certainly it doesn't contribute to making that a, a better video. Just, I think what, what he adds to the video is you know who he is. He's yeah. really famous and it's kind of like, oh, wow, there he is. Yeah, you know, cameo, but I think, right? yeah. I think the, the in the video is one of these comedy, you know, it's very along the lines of what Twisted Sister were doing at, at this time. And, totally. You, you nailed and, it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. It's like the, it's almost like a, a the metal comedy kind yeah, of video. Campy, and, you know, it's, kind yeah, of, it's campy. And yeah. Uh, but I think. The reason it was played so much is because the song is just a fucking masterpiece. Yeah, I think it's great. one of the best songs of the 80s overall. Certainly one of the best early metal songs. Again, I agree with you about Warren. This is his best solo of all time. Although I think, uh, you know, his guitar work on Lay It Down is also fucking, I don't know who came up the riff, but Warren started writing this song. So he was the one who wrote this song and it was co-written with, again, Robin Crosby and Stephen Piercy. Um, it's... The melody is so complex. I love the solo and I love Blotzer's accompaniment to the solo. He just does these little fancy symbol, kind of like Nico McBrain, almost technical level uh, licks. And it's he's just a really powerful drummer. And then just the the whole band sounds great. The backup vocals are great. Um, the funny thing is, great, <laughs> huh? they don't look that great. 
in the in the video. Oh their, yeah, the their wardrobe. Like first of all, I want to say that Stephen Piercy's sort of dancing style looks like yeah. he has to pee. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like he's like trying not to pee. And oh yeah, his, he's kind of holding his legs together yeah, and shit, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's so weird. I don't even know what that is. And then his wardrobe looks like he stole it from Jennifer Beals. Oh, dude, that's awesome. <laughs> totally, man. Totally. One, okay. one crochet looks like a drag queen, you know? That's so funny. So, I, I mean, their, their look is so bizarre and not in a good way. Yeah, um, I think the only guy who really looks, yeah, and Robin Crosby with his fucking puffy shirts and shit looks so yeah. funny. I think the guy who looks the coolest is Warren. Yeah. You know? Because he, he, he's one of these guys who's kind of built to play guitar. He's just kind of this skinny guy just shredding, and yeah. he looks pretty cool. Um, okay, we got to talk about the lyrics of this song because what the fuck is going on here? This is the classic cool lyrics that don't make sense. So it's, again, it's kind of a, Stephen Piercy does talk about the inspiration for this song and it's similar to Wanted Man. They're kind of a gang. You know, he's talking about how they're a badass gang. You know, it's out on the streets. That's where we'll meet. You make the night. I always cross the line. Tightened our belts, abuse ourselves, get in our way. <laughs> We'll put you on your shelf. Now, I yeah. love this line. Again, makes no fucking yeah, sense. It and it gets even more cryptic. Another day, some other way, we're going to go, but then we'll see you again. I've had enough. We've had enough. I love that. I've had enough. We've had enough. And then cold in vain, she said. I mean, that's like a line a Japanese band trying to do English would write. Yeah, like, it totally. makes no sense at all. And, you know, I looked on Genius because Genius is cool. Um, like, if you look up the lyrics to Steely Dan, there's all this annotation of people interpreting what it means. And they may be guessing or they may know the facts. Round and round, there's only one comment, and it's this. So the chorus, round and round, with love, we'll find a way. Just give it time. Round and round, what comes around, goes around. I'll tell you why. And the Genius annotation is, I'll tell you why. The annotation says, he never really tells us why. <laughs> <laughs> And then he says, dig. Yeah, yeah. So the song's like, it starts out by them being a gang, but then it's like kind of a love song because it says, looking at you, looking at me, the way you move, you know it's easy to see, the neon lights on me tonight. I've got a way, we're going to prove it tonight. Like Romeo to Juliet, time and time I'm going to make you mine. I've had enough, we've had enough. It's all the same, she said. Again, what the fuck does any of this fucking mean? It's ludicrous. Yeah. But it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. I mean, this is, okay, this is the number one. You know, when I'm ranking the songs, this is number one. There, yeah. There's just no doubt. I like every song on this record, but this stands head and shoulders above the rest. Um, it's just the best rat song of all time, and it's a classic, and it's just so melodically weird. I love the way that the verses just almost overlap. Like, he'll sing a verse, and then he'll just start singing the next one, and it's no pause. And, of course, the bridge, you know, that, you know, I knew right from the beginning. It's just so melodically more sophisticated than what most of these bands were doing at this time. I'd say Def Leppard is the only one that's in the same ballpark here, melodically. Yeah, that's uh, fair. Yeah. I Anyway. Uh, All right, so let's move on to the next song, uh, In Your Direction. Yep.
Eddie Demartini. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to highlight some of uh, Warren's playing there. Um, what, what What's your opinion of this one? It's okay. It's yeah. sort of the middle tier of this song. Like I, I, I split this album into the top tier and the bottom tier in terms of songs. I, none of them are bad, mind you. I kind of agree with you, but like, you know, I, I think in the in in the top tier so far, I think it's Wanted Man. You're in trouble round and round. I think uh, this one's in the in the the bottom tier. Um, I I think uh, Back for More is in the top tier to me. Um, Lack of communication maybe in the top tier and the rest are in the in the bottom tier. So like, I, it's okay. I, it's not my favorite song on the album, you know. Yeah, I I actually agree. Although, you know, I like every song on this album. I think is top tier for this band. So this is my number nine. This is my second least uh, favorite. But it's only just because I like the other ones more. It's not because I don't like this. I think it's really cool. I think. Uh, Piercy's kind of robotic new wave like vocals are really cool on this one. Uh, it, it's funny because he has there's this line early in the song where he says, well, months and days, they slowly pass. But he actually sings, well, meths and days. It's really <laughs> weird. He's pronounced it meths. Um, I don't know if he was ever on meth, but, you know, who knows? And then and then we've got more weird lyrics here. Well, city lights are shining on me. Well, um, mm. well, city lights are shining on me. Well said, it's time to go. Abusing you all across the country said I feel hot coals. Yeah. Like, what the <laughs> fuck are these lyrics? I anyway, I like Warren's solos on this. I think the song's heavy, it rocks. But again, it's toward the bottom for me, uh, just because I think the other ones are that much better. All right, the next one, She Wants Money. With, oh, so In Your Direction was completely written by Stephen Piercy. Uh, okay. So the next one is written by Juan Crouchier. And again, this is an old Mickey Rat song. It had been around for years. And you can find early versions of this with Jakey e. Lee, et cetera. Um, so let's move to the uh, last song on the first side, She Wants Money by Juan Crouchier. Crouchier. go all right um what's funny is the you know I, you maybe talk about the lyrics here but um Juan uh Crocier is so proud of the original lyrics to this song <laughs> that he calls out and shows hey you know uh the original the the, the the song on the album didn't have the original lyrics the original lyrics are actually published on his website because he wants you to read them like oh what, what you know masterpiece you know uh, Yates sort of poetry are we going to uh, see here? And it's just the same garbage. So, oh, that's funny. I mean, especially because yeah. the song She Wants Money is so fucking dumb. Yeah. You know, it's like, how I mean, could any lyrics Six with that? Written this, yeah, exactly, right? yeah. exactly. All right, so so anything else you want to say about this one? No, this is okay. This isn't my, it's okay. It's fine. It's not my favorite song in this album. It's the the, the lyrics, of the, obviously the subject matter is, is sort of funny, but Sort of in, in in kind of air quotes. That's about it. I don't think much of this song really. Yeah, this is my least favorite song on the album. And in fact, when I was first listening to the album for this, I was actually thinking this is where I would put "You Think You're Tough" or "Sweet Cheater" or something else from the EP. But I don't think "You Think You're Tough" would really fit this album. Um, it would. It's it's really kind of better. It's it's kind of rough around the edges, and I don't think 
changing the production of that would be great. Um, and this song's kind of grown on me a little bit, but it's still kind of my least favorite. Um, again, we have the lyrics. I don't know if these were part of the original uh, masterwork or if they're Stephen Piercy's take on it, although it is completely credited to Crouchier. There's no Piercy credit on this. Um, uh, the, the lyrics are, she gives the clue, I make my move. I got the rhythm in the groove, slow at times, right tonight. So there you go. <laughs> um, yeah. I do like the part where he says, she wants money. She, like it kind of overlaps. Yeah. I mean, it, it's grown on me. It's it's somewhat catchy, but it's it's definitely the bottom of the barrel for this album for me. I just like all the other ones more. All right, yep. moving on to side two, Lack of Communication. This song was co-written by Juan Crouchier and Stephen Piercy. That's kind of a, a duet between uh, Crostier and Piercy, right? I yeah, yeah, think. yeah. And he has a he has a good voice, you know. A yeah, yeah, voice, so. totally. Um, yeah, I think this is in the top tier group that I was just mentioning. I like this song. It's probably like my fourth, or fifth favorite song on right. the album. Um, but yeah, I like this one. This, this is good. I like the kind of duet back and forth style. Again, I, I assume that's Crostier and Pierce, obviously Piercy. Um, it's good. I think this is a good way to open up the second side of the album for sure. Yeah. For me, this is number two. I fucking love this song. I love the weird time signature, the syncopation. I love Blotzer's fucking drumming on this. Um, the, the, just the fucking verses and bridge and the, the, the great, uh, you know, lack of communication back off kind of vocal. Yeah. And that, that whole time's passing us by, we have our reason. I fucking love this. I think this is like the kind of dark horse track of the album where it should have gotten more play, even though it was released as a single, they should have done a video for this one too. They could have kept yeah. it going. I, this is super catchy to me. It reminds me a lot of you're in love, which is one of my favorites. Yeah. Too. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I could see that. Yeah. yeah. All right. I next, would, I, I, okay. I would say "You're in Love" is better than this. But oh yeah, "You're in Love" is probably my second favorite rat song next to "Round and yeah. Round." I mean, I fucking love it. Um, yep. Anyway, back for more. <laughs> Yeah, this is, I, I love this song too. It's probably my second or third favorite on this album. 
um, round and round. If I'm ranking them kind of real time, I'd say round and round. Maybe um, Wanted Man a second, and this would be third, or you could switch two and three. I think so, that's yeah. probably what most people would say, and it's yeah. it, it's it's just so fucking melodic. Uh, I I mean, I like the strutting kind of uh, Brit uh, verses. You know, where it's like yeah. bah, nah, nah, now and then just the opening yeah. kind of clean guitar, which they would use it really effectively again on body talk, which is fucking amazing, even though body talks kind of singing and lyrics get annoying for me. This is like just so melodic, so catchy. Yep. And the video for this is is amusing as well as uh, it has a cameo, it has some cameos, um, a few. Uh, first of all, Tawny Katane's in it. Um, I think the Milton Berle's uh, uh, family is in it, you said. Right? Yeah, so there's a scene where there are two, I think Tawny Katane and another kind of hot women are at a table with Marshall Burl, and he's kind of, he kind of gives us this, you know, this sense of being this rich guy. And, and you know, yeah. the, the whole song is about stay away from this guy, you're back for more mistreatment or whatever. And, and then of course, yeah. So, so, so they're there. And then Milton Burl appears at the end. He get, he drives a motorcycle into a rat show and gives this goofy fucking, you know, almost like Jerry Lewis, like facial expression at the end. It's like, Ugh. yeah. Even though I kind of right. wish he was in all their videos, just be just because it would be like, you know, a theme that they would just do. You yeah. know, you just expect him to be in them, even though, you know, whether he's funny or not's another thing. But it's kind of cool that they just had him again. And then, you know, Marshall Burl's in there again. Yeah. Well, and and of course, uh Tommy Lee and Nikki Six uh make a cameo as cops in this video too, which is sort of amusing. But the funniest thing to me is actually. You mentioned uh, Stephen Piercy's, you know, karate kicks. His uh, half Roth kicks are pretty fucking lazy. Like he, he, his kicks don't really get very high, and they they look like he's not even trying. You know what I mean? It's like he's trying to do the Dave Lee Roth thing, but he can't really do it. So it's just kind of like this like lazy kind of flailing kick, and he shouldn't do those. It don't look good. Yeah, it's funny. I, David Lee Roth's kicks are amazing, like his whole midair splits and all the shit he did. I mean, but I think he was a black belt. I think Piercy just studied karate a little bit because I, I he's, he's a green belt. He's a green belt or something. <laughs> but anyway, as far as this song goes, I put it at number five and I think most people would put it higher. But it's just maybe just because I've heard it so much and the novelty of some of the other tracks that kind of snuck up on me. It's kind of more of a, a recency th issue. Um, yeah. But anyway, the lyrics are funny because it's like he's singing about this guy who's obviously bad to this woman and you just go back for more abuse. It's almost like he's singing to a woman warning her not to date himself. Like because mm. Stephen Percy, I mean, the way he treats women, it's like, don't date that guy, Stephen Percy. He's terrible. In other words, you know, it's yeah. like you give him an inch. He took you a mile. He made you believe your society's child. That lyric always yeah. made me fun. Fucking society's child makes me yeah, laugh. That's funny. Uh, all yeah. right, let's move on to the next one. The morning after, written by right. uh, Crosby, Demartini, and Piercy.
What do you think about this one? It's okay. It's in the bottom tier to me, but it, it's fine. Um, I think the next two are probably lower on my list, but this to me, it's not one of my favorites. It's okay. Yeah, to me, this is one of those dark horse tracks that just rose to the top. I absolutely love this. This is number three for me now. Uh, I love the brief but cool bridge, the driving riff. I like that it's heavy and fast. Uh, I think Martini's awesome on this one. I love Piercy's vocals and the harmonies. Uh, the lyrics, again, are hilarious. You think unkindly, simple, not sane. Know what I mean? Uh, no. I don't, I, I don't um, say I'm deliberately sent here to please. I mean, all this ad, adverb, all these adverbs just make it so awkward. Yeah. But again, I think he just kind of came up with the melody and fit words to it. Although I do love the lyric that, that we listened to a little bit that just made me laugh out loud when I first heard it. Lift your skirt, lady, high in the night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just what you need. Won't you give it a try? But I, uh, I love the the bridge where it's like, it's going to be right, right out of the night. It's just, I fucking, this is one of those ones that just crept up on me. The more I listen to it, the more I like it. So it rose to the top for me. Uh, again, I just love this album because the album tracks are all, I think everything's good. I don't think there's a bad song on it. And some of the album tracks have risen to be my favorites. You know, it's just every song I think could have been played on the radio. It's so melodic. Um, just great melodies. And I wish the rest of their records were this like this, but at any rate, okay. So we're down to the last two. These are really Crosby and you could just see Crosby's name appear here again and again and again. And you just don't see that as much on the next album. So I have kind of a theory about that. Um, the next one I'm insane was written by Crosby. And this was one of the songs. So I watched this uh, rat documentary about his death. There's a channel that has like all these stories about guys who've died in rock. That's like a YouTube channel. And the guy gets a lot of facts wrong. So I'm not sure, but he said this was from the band Mac Mita, but it's definitely from one of fucking Crosby's like 50 bands he was in before rat. Um, so he wrote this completely himself and he brought this in. So this is I'm insane. All right, I'm insane. Uh, How about this one, dude? Uh, not one of my favorites. <laughs> it's pretty fucking stupid. It's all right. I mean, like, like I, there's no horrible songs on this yeah. album as we were talking about, but this certainly is not one of the top ones on it, in my opinion. I like that it's heavy and fast. Uh, it is toward the bottom for me. I rank it at number eight, so only two are worse than this, in my opinion. Uh, but it's fucking great. Uh, it's also used in The Wrestler uh, as background music in one scene. Uh, but to me, that's how good this album is. This song is number eight. I still think it's really classic. Classic. I think it's like new wave of British heavy metal. I think there's almost nothing hair metal about this song. It's fast. It's uh, rocking. Um, the lyrics are funny. Uh, you know, I love the part how he says, uh, fucking child. Like, 
insane child you're insane or i'm insane and then he i like his i'm insane i mean it's funny yeah it is kind of ridiculous and then they have these uh you know bo hill puts these ambulance noises toward the end yeah hello it's so funny but it pretty much rocks it's catchy um you know i dig it all right last song on the album scene of the crime Right, dude. Spinal Tap fucking <laughs> lyrics. The, the, I mean, the lyric, the after-school narration story, after-school story, special narration. I went and knocked on your door. You weren't home. Yeah. You broke the law. Yeah, like, it was, this song, I got to say, this is the worst song on the album. It's dumb as fuck to me. I, I don't think this is a good song. Dude, I couldn't disagree more. This this actually was up there for me, and I kind of brought it back down a little bit. I think I put it at number six now, but it's just because morning after kind of jumped ahead, and a few a few I kind of just came to my senses. Like you know, I can't just put all the deep cuts that are new to me as as the top. Um, you know, I got to keep Wanted Man up there. I got to keep uh, some of these others up there. But it's so power pop. This is like so melodic. Uh, it's kind of happy. And I love the great backup vocals. Blotzer is really good on this one. Um, the way the song fades out is great. It's just catchy as hell. Um, I, I like it. I, I mean, yeah, the lyrics make me laugh for sure. Uh, you know, um, you broke the law, you see, and that's a felony. me. It's just catchy. <laughs> that's the one that just is like, did Geezer Butler write that? Yeah, that's yeah about totally. The- but I, it's it. Then it shows in the chorus. I think you've been caught. You've been caught at the. And That's I love better. the. I love yeah. the. Um, at the scene of the, and then it jumps into the other kind of chorus. Now I see yeah. what you've done to me. You know, even though cold blooded bitch going on to me is embarrassing. But it's like, and then and then when the chorus ends, it just jumps into the verse again. Like I got me a weapon. It's just the way they transition between verse and chorus. It's kind of like round and round. It's really, it's really just so melodic. And I just, I just can't get enough of it. I, this one's really grown on me. Um, again, I like this album so much, you know, I, I, you know, even though I rank some songs lower, I just think it's, I mean, I give it a 10 out of 10. It's a classic to me. So, uh, let's jump into the evals then. Um, I guess you have me going first, so I'll, I'll go first again. Let's, uh, you kind of structured this your way. So I copied what you did. So it'd be consistent. So we evaluate the band as a whole. And then we, you know, maybe go into out of the cellar and how we, you know, why we kind of chose this and whether, you know, what what stands the test of time? Does Rat, as their whole career or the band, stand the test of time in the CFX way? Or is it just this album? So as far as the band, I think the band is a really good band. I mean, as far as musicianship, they're way on a whole different tier than Motley Crue. I mean, Motley Crue, with the exception of maybe Stephen Piercy, although 
on record, he's great. You know, it's kind of like Vince on the first couple albums. He sounds great. And then it's just like, you know, I, I still think Stephen Piercy's better than Vince, but that's not saying yeah. a lot. Um, I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, he's got a neat voice. It's He doesn't really sound like anyone else. He's got a very unique tone. And I think it grates at times in the later career, like Dance, 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 when he sings Dance, Dance, Dance. It's like, ah, yeah. his voice just gets annoying. But on this album, he sounds great. Um, probably Bo Hill beefing him up just because we know live. He didn't say it's funny. One of the videos I watched uh sea of tranquility, which we both have watched videos from, and I'm a huge fan. They did a, they did a thing on another channel about rat and um, Pete Pardo, the guy who's the host. He's seen a million shows. He's seen like, you know, probably hundreds and hundreds of metal shows. And he said rat was one of the worst concerts he's ever seen. Yeah. Um, he said that, you know, they just sounded like shit. They were sloppy. And I think it was, he saw them in 87, which would have been, um, you know, way cool junior era. Yeah, that's when my friend from high school saw that tour, I think. And there's early footage of them where they sound pretty good. But Stephen Piercy doesn't, He even though in the early days he can sound okay live, he doesn't sound nearly as good as he sounds on these records, especially this one. Uh, but still, a neat, you know, he comes up with great vocal melodies. He's... Um, comes up with weird ass lyrics that don't make sense, but he comes up with cool vocal melodies. Robin Crosby, again, this is kind of the weird, um, I don't know what to, what the term would be, you know, the very, the weird variable here, because it's as a guitar player, it's kind of hard to differentiate where he fits in versus Warren. I mean, obviously he's playing rhythm most of the time because Warren is much more technically accomplished as a guitarist, but if you look at the song, song for song, his participation rate here is way higher on this album than any other album. And so why is this album so much fucking better? Maybe he's the ingredient that's missing maybe. from the others. Maybe maybe because he was on drugs and was kind of checking out, he wasn't doing as much. I don't know. Because Bo Hill's on all those albums. He's on everything uh, except for Detonator is when they don't use him at first. And those other three albums, I don't think measure up here. And... You know, maybe Robin Crosby's the missing Grammy. I don't know. But he's also playing that kind of clean, cool part at Back for More. And he had a lot to do with the songwriting on that. So who knows? Uh, Warren Martini. you know, Jeff is going to have a big disagreement about this. Uh, I think he's really good. You know, obviously, you know, he's like the as George Lynch is to Dawkin, the Warren Martini is to Rat, et cetera, et cetera. Whoever the guy was for White Lion, even though I think White Lion is really bad. Um Doc and I'm not a big fan of either. I've, I've actually tried to get into them because I've always thought they were kind of heavier than typical hair metal. And, you know, I like um, Breaking the Chains. I like that song a lot. But I've listened to the rest of that album and the, you know, Tooth and Nail and these other records. I just don't like Doc and I wish I wish I could, you know, because I always like finding more of these bands to dig, but they just don't do it for me. Um, but I think me Warren, neither, as you're, uh, yeah, as yeah, you you, you have a lot to say about Do Dawkins, especially <laughs> the the hair. You know, he well, Dawkins did didn't he? Wasn't he part of our infomercial? Wasn't he on the great looking hair commercials? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. GLH. GLH. Yeah. Todd Dawkins, celebrity spokesperson for GLH. Yeah. Um, at any rate, uh, he also came up with the initial uh version of round and round like he's the one who came up with the riff 
Uh, mm. I don't know if he came up with the immortal riff of Lay It Down, one of the greatest metal riffs of all time, or if it was uh, Crosby. No idea. But but I think he's a great guitarist. I think especially on this album, his his solos are great, especially Round and Round. Juan Crouchy, a great bass, great backup vocals. His funky bass opening on You're in Trouble is really cool. Um, Bobby Blotzer, again, I think he's really good. Um, you know, there's some electronic albums, uh, an electronic kind of gated drums on this record that may seem a little dated but i think they add a dynamic to this record that makes the songs more interesting um i love the fancy symbol work he throws in during solos uh you know obviously most of his best work is on this album i think is probably his greatest work is on you're in love uh he really goes nuts at, on that one but lack of communication is awesome uh and it really you know he really does help to create the rad experience <laughs> Uh, you know, as we say, again, yeah. they're far better musicians than a lot of these kind of hair metal bands. Although I would put them on a par with something like Def Leppard, uh, you know, who are all solid um, and solid melodically. But the problem with evaluating Rat as a band is you have to look at their whole career, right? So I think looking at the rest of the discography, it's kind of that same trajectory as Motley Crue, although not as drastic, right? Because the 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 kind of plummeting and plummet in quality between uh shout at the devil and theater and theater of pain is massive uh whereas with rat it's more subtle right yeah. i just think what ends up happening is 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 they they have moments on all of these albums like uh, a lot of people do like invasion of your privacy more than the first album which i think is just fucking crazy because you know other than the two songs we know which are just as good as anything on this album uh, the rest of it is really boring. Um, it's it's not bad. It's just not memorable. Um, you know, I I would think if you heard that album and you put on You're in Love, you would think, oh, they've done it again. They've made another fucking great album because that song is so fucking good. Um, but then you get to the next song, Never Use Love, and it's just <laughs> fucking boring. And all the songs are about love. It's like they don't... Yeah, know, I know. There's I know. no... Where's the rat gang? Yeah. You know, where's the fucking insane ambulance driver or the fucking you know you're you know the tough guys where where's the adverbs yeah where's all the adverbs where's all the weird lyrics that don't make sense i mean the lyrics all make sense and they're all fucking boring and repetitive you know about getting laid or whatever i mean lay it down is saved by that fucking incredible riff and it's just catchy as hell you know it's got a great melody but the rest of it there's a song called You Should Know By Now that's kind of a classic hair metal, catchy song. It could have been done by Poison. And it's really, you know, you get it stuck in your head. It's kind of like She Wants Money. It's not great, but it's like memorable. But the rest of the album, I couldn't tell you what like uh, Dangerous But Worth the Risk or any of these other album tracks sound like. They just don't stick with you. And I just don't, yeah. I think it's a real dive in quality, even though a lot of people don't. As for the rest, again, it's like one or two songs per album. Body Talk, I think, is fantastic, even though I can't deal with the lyrics. Like, Body Talk, it's, again, it's just no dumb sex lyrics. But I love the kind of weird, um, clean guitar opening at the beginning. It's really cool. And then it rocks. It's, like, got a cool vocal melody, and it's, like, really heavy. Um, interestingly enough, I think most of the rest of the album is just classic hair metal. I mean, Slip of the Lip just sounds like generic hair metal to me. Um, yep. even though it's somewhat memorable and the dance is very annoying. Um, even though it's <laughs> yeah. memorable, it's not like, it's not catchy. It's just one of those songs that's catchy in a way you don't really want to remember it. And then as far as the reach for the sky, you know, I love, I want a woman. 
Uh, I think it's super catchy. It's simpler than anything on this record. It's not as dynamic. There's, but it's it it. I think it stands up as a catchy, memorable song that I enjoy. Way Cool Junior is kind of that Aerosmith kind of ragdoll kind of song. It's it's kind of annoying, but I do think it's melodically complex, so it's interesting. Even though, God, the lyrics on, you know, the whole Way Cool Junior thing, again, it's like Poochie the dog on The Simpsons. It's just embarrassing. Um, And then the final album, really, of the great classic era of Rat, Detonator, uh, Love and Use a Dirty Job, again, just could be Slaughter or Warrant. Just this sing-along hair metal, super boring. I think around Dancing Undercover, they really just transitioned to just becoming a bland hair metal band. And I think my theory of bands like this is that these bands that just want to make it, they just want to be rock stars and don't really care about the music. Um, They do a bunch of drug use and partying and just the quality of the music goes down. Like when they're young and hungry, somehow they're able to really write songs that are going to catch people's ear. Like they write a classic like Round and Round or Livewire or these kind of songs where they're really good. Um, and then maybe they just don't have that many good ideas either. You know? Yeah. I mean, there's years of playing, you know, they're, they're playing these clubs. They're really trying to make it and they're trying. And then they, they, they have years to come up with these ideas. And then by the time they make it, they're just not, they just don't have any ideas left. Maybe they have one or two, you still get lay it down, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh yeah, and it's funny because I contrast them with Led Zeppelin because Led Zeppelin did the same shit. They partied and stuff. And their first album, you know, uh, it's very derivative. You know, as much as I love Led Zeppelin 1 and, the, you know, obviously the musicianship is unparalleled and, you know, they're just an incredible group of people. Uh, they continued to evolve. You know, they, they, can, they did shit like Led Zeppelin 3, which is just completely different, you know, and they continue to bring in these sounds and make don't great. forget uh boogie with stew so yeah they had their moments of the boogie with <laughs> stew and black country woman and all this but i mean they do have they also have like song remains the same and cashmere yeah. and they just continue even like even an album where they're completely burnt out like in through the outdoor has like in the evening and you know fool in the rain and these great songs it's like they partied they did a bunch of drugs but somehow they were still into the music the whole time and so you know, and I, com- I I compare this to that because I do like this album a lot. I mean, I think Out of the Cellar, to me, is probably one of my favorite albums of the 80s. I mean, it's really good to me. Uh, and of this genre specifically, I think it really stands out. And it's really kind of should be looked at more, as I'll get into in a minute. Um, the lyrics, again, they're more interesting on this album because they're kind of abstract and and cryptic more because i think he just basically made up shit as he went along to to make to fit the melody um and but i think the lyrics on the other albums they're even lazier like he's really not even trying they're just about sex because rat really always said they wanted to appeal more and more to women and they're like you know when they first started playing obviously heavy metal there's a bunch of dudes in the audience and i think hair metal was Partially, that was the reason for hair metal was to appeal to more women um, and to make the music more poppy. And, you know, I think any smart woman wouldn't like that stuff. They would probably rather listen to this if they were a fan of Rat. I think most people would would admit that this is better than the rest of the discography. So on the band as a whole, I have to be short. I mean, I think they really lost whatever spark they had on the EP and this uh, and maybe a couple of songs on the first first album or two and that it was just dead so i just i'm short on the band as a whole now as to the album 
I like this album. I have workout mixes where I have a lot of these songs. Uh, I really think it's not hair metal in the in the sense that it would come to be. I think it's more of an extension of what the Scorpions and Def Leppard were doing at the time and maybe even New Wave of British Heavy Metal, some of the more uh, raw stuff of that, even though it's Bo Hill did this incredible production job to really make it sound like a like a pop album uh, because hair metal wasn't really quite a, a thing. You know, I just remember back in the day, you know, seeing these bands and just thinking, oh, this is heavy metal. And then around maybe 85 or 86, I just thought, oh, okay, this is what, this is what music is now. You know, it's all these bands, you know, other than the new wave bands or whatever, it was like, it was just one hair metal band after another, just churning out these bands. And they just became worse and worse until you got like the likes of Warrant and shit where it was just bad, you know, but I never thought of Rat that way at the beginning. You know, even though I wasn't as into this as I am now, um, I just thought they're heavy. You know, they're metal, even though they're, you know, they're pretty boys, but they're metal, you know. Yeah. Um, and no one sounds like them. They really sound unique. I don't think anybody sounds like them. I think that uh, they weren't also weren't trying to copy and rip off things directly. I think even Motley Crue was trying to copy things more directly than them. But because of their weird magic that they had with that first album, it comes out totally original by accident. Like we talked about how Too Fast for Love is kind of an accidental masterpiece. I don't think this was anything was accidental about this. I think they knew what they were doing. I think they were musically accomplished and i think they had a really good young producer who knew what to do with them and they made a great album um and i like this as much as any album of the time i like it as much as you know um maybe not as much as van halen one you know one of the greatest albums ever but i like it as much as a lot of what van halen was doing at this time or dio or you know iron maiden it's just different you know it's 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 different it's more serious music but I enjoy this on the same level as that or Judas Priest, even though, you know, maybe I respect those bands a little more. But I don't know. I really like this album. I love the power pop direction. I love the melody because no one else was doing this. Maybe Def Leppard with Pyromania. It's even more that way. But I just enjoy the the music. It's similar to Fast for Love, my my uh, Too Fast for Love, my feeling on this. I I really want this people to listen to this again and give it another listen, especially the deep cuts. Um, I think it's a good, good in a different way. Like I said, it's melodic sophistication is way beyond what Motley Crue were doing. Um, and it's way beyond what Rat would do uh, for the most part with a few exceptions like body talk and you're in love and, 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 uh, and lay it down and maybe I want a woman. They would never get to this melodic level again. Um, so overall, realistically, you know, like there's interviews where Stephen Piercy trashes the Rock Hall of Fame. I do not think Rat deserves to get into the Rat uh, the Rock Hall of Fame. I think this album, if they could just induct albums into the Rock Hall, I would induct this for my personal Rock Hall of Fame because I I really think it's great. I think it's a kind of a masterpiece for the kind of music it is, um, and I think it's pretty close to perfect. And I think they just would have, you know, maybe they would look. Like I think about Motley Crue, if they would have quit after those first two albums, maybe Rat quit after this, an invasion of your privacy, and people would just be like, wow, if that band would have stayed together, what they would have done, little do they know that they would have just gotten worse uh, in both cases. So I wish, in some ways, I wish they would have just made this and maybe the one other album and quit, uh, because I think this is great. Uh, you know, I want it to be, I want to be long. Realistically speaking, do I think people are going to just suddenly discover this? I hope so. I just don't think so. That's my evaluation. Okay. 
Well, there you go. Um, all right. So I'll talk about the band and then the same format as you did. So Stephen Piercy, I think he has a great voice. You know, it's, it's unique. It sounds good. It's really good as a rock, uh, you know, singer sound, but he's not a good singer. He's really not a good singer at all. If you watch him live, he, his range is about four or five notes. Maybe, <laughs> if that. <laughs> maybe, maybe a couple more notes than Vince Neil, who has like a two note range and can't actually hit the note. Um, but, you know, his sound as a rock singer is actually, it, it's really good. If he was a really great singer and he was motivated and not such a burnout and all these other things, he could have really been something, as they say, in terms of a all-time singer. Um, lots of reports about him being terrible live. You mentioned, you know, Pete Pardo's uh, right. you know, review. If you look, you can search on YouTube. You can find all sorts of you know them playing live, and he and he does sound like shit for the most part. Um, so you know that's the Stephen Piercy, Warren D. Martini. All right, so look, here's the thing. There's no question that he's a very skilled guitarist. There's zero question about that. He absolutely is. Shredder, high, a high amount of virtuosity on the instrument. But you could say the same thing in my with like an Ingve Malmsteen or Kirk Hammett. Um, lots of acrobatics, but to me, a lot of them are very boring after a while. There are people who are really into guitar as an instrument and into these guys who can just play just crazy shit all over the place at insane speed. That's great. And, and people are into that and I don't begrudge them that I'm not though. Like I'm much more of a fan of, of the music and the melody and them telling a musical story with what they play. So I think that, you know, guys like Warren D. Martini are just not that interesting to me. And, and Kirk Hammett, which I'll get into in a second, a little bit more really isn't that interesting to me. And Ingve is just the epitome of that. Like, virtuosic player. I challenge anybody to just hum anything he's ever played. It's just boring, fucking shredding crap. I just can't take it. Uh, I really can't. And plus, he's like a major league a-hole. So, um, you know, very uninterested in, in Ingve Malmsteen. So what would a um, 13-year-old Jeff say to this, though? So I think that I, well, I'll get into that. It's a fair right. question. All right. So Eddie Van Halen, I want to bring up here. We talked about him a little bit. And Eddie Van Halen is the exception because he is the model of the guitar shredder. There's no question about that. There's nobody who um, surpasses him in the virtuosity category. There's others who may approach it. But the thing about Eddie Van Halen is he also was a great musician. Okay, so he had both. He was able to shred and his solos are memorable. And what he played was really memorable. And his technique was like, so Eddie Van Halen had both. And I think a lot of these guys just copied the thing that they could copy through practice. And it may be easier to do so, although easy in air quotes, to be a virtuoso on an instrument is not easy. But Eddie Van Halen, the thing about him is he was a great musician and as well. And I think that's the difference. Stevie Ray Vaughan is another guy who's in the same category, virtuosic player, but a great musician and, and listen to his solo. So you, it's possible to have both, but it's not very common. And to your question about what I thought at 13 year old, I thought, that, I mean, I wasn't ever like a guitar shred, guitar hero type, but I did sort of recognize maybe at the, not the same level of sophistication as I might now that Eddie Van Halen was different yeah. than, than these guys. And I actually think, you know, there's, um, I'll point out another couple of guitarists who are kind of in the middle here. 
um, Adrian Smith and uh, Dave Murray of Iron Maiden. I, I think at times they're more melodic and at times they're shreddy where it's just they're just playing a bunch of throwaway stuff. Um, but both of them are really good guitarists. I actually don't think either of them is good as Warren D. Martini in terms of pure uh, uh, technique. But I think that both of them have their moments, that, more moments that are more melodic, better musicianship uh, in terms of uh, better music of their solos that, than uh, uh, Warren there. I'm going to call out Kirk Hammond in particular, and we'll get to Metallica and undoubtedly at some point. We've talked about him and the point I'm about to make in prior episodes where I've said, and I will continue to say, he's not even the best guitarist in his own band, um, Kirk Hammett. James Hetfield um, is the opposite of Kirk Hammett, not as technically virtuosic, there's no question, but he's more interesting as a guitar player. I think he, he writes all those cool riffs by and large, Hetfield wrote, and, 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 there's plenty of videos where Hetfield is playing solos, doesn't do it nearly as much, obviously, as Kirk Hammett. His solos are better. Um, to me, they're better. They're more melodic. They're better constructed. They're just not a bunch of kind of crazy ass noise and just and just shredding for shredding sake. And to me, uh, Kirk Hammett represents exactly what I don't like is just let's just, just just shred, shred, noise, noise, noise. Like I like Metallica because of the riffs and and Headfield is responsible for that. And that's an example of that. And again, you know, the, just to close this little topic up. There's a reason that people who are into guitar and music and, st- and all the things that we're into bring up guys like David Gilmore and Mark Knopfler and Alex Lifeson and people like that in the conversations of great guitarists. And it's not because of their sure virtuosity in the sense of a Warren Martini, but it's because they combine plenty of virtuosity with that incredible music, uh, musicmanship and, you know, um, writing and composing of what they're uh, playing and and things like that, and because and pe- people love the music they're playing. So anyway, that is my little kind of rant about Warren. Yeah, before you, know, you move on, I'm going to say I agree with most of what you're saying. I think it's just a matter of degrees. I really wouldn't yeah. throw Warren under the bus with with someone like Malmsteen or Kirk Hammett. I, again, Kirk Hammett has his moments, but most of the time I really feel like his stuff is completely unmemorable. I do think Warren is is kind of in between. I definitely agree with you that he is his solos are not as memorable as Eddie Van Halen's. I mean, obviously, Eddie Van Halen might be the best ever. He's certainly in the top echelon. Um, And, you know, Knopfler is tech. You know, obviously, he's a different style of player, but just as technical, like his technique is unimpeachable. Right. Um, And all these guys you mentioned, I like them all better than Warren Demartini. Um, But I just think it's I just don't think it's my my neg my. uh, Assessment of him is more positive than you, but I don't, I don't think you're wrong at, at its essence. I think, I think it's true that he is not of the level of the people you single out as having, you know, either technique and or melodic sense. But I think he's better than some of the people you mentioned, you know, comparing him to, like Ingbe. Yeah, or George Lynch, or Reb Beach, or whatever. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I would agree with you. He's better than. But he's to me kind of under uh, more on that side than on right, the other right. side. And that, Fair enough. That's fine. Um, the rest of the band, they're solid uh, for this type of music. Uh, but you know, I Bobby Blotzer's okay. I, I don't know if I hide it, hold him in as high a regard as you. Um, but yeah, they're solid. They're good. I mean, they're, to your point, they're better than Motley Crue. A low bar. Um, you know, certainly. Uh, yeah, I, you know, Mick Mars is solid, I guess, as we talked about, and Tommy Lee, okay, uh, for the type of music he plays. 
you were talking about asking 13-year-old me what I thought. 13-year-old me thought Tommy Lee was way better than old man Jeff thinks of Tommy Lee, which is that he's really, really boring as a, as a, as a drummer and, and solid, but not really that great. Um, and over the years, of course, much more appreciation for much better drummers right, right. You know, that are in different galaxies than him, like a Stuart Copeland or, a, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, much more. I mean, none of these guys are innovators, although, yeah, I, I do enjoy Tommy Lee's playing. I think he's probably the best musician, musician overall, either him or Mick, uh, in Motley Crue, but none of them are in the top tier, but that, do, that doesn't matter. You know, I think, yeah, I think I especially with Rat, they're all really solid and, and polished, whereas Motley Crue, they're not right. You have like, especially that the whole, you know, the bass playing of, uh, of Nikki, you could, re- he never really had any interest in being a musician. Whereas yeah. I think Juan Crochet definitely is a musician, you know, of, of professional level. Right. Yeah, Whereas, you know, fair. and I think, I think they're solid, right. They're not your typical kind of junkie hair metal kind of stuff. Like, especially, you know, you compare them to someone like poison who, you know, they're basically a, a trumped up garage band uh, who, who, who none of them are that great. Uh, couldn't agree anyway. more about poison. Yeah. Yep. Um, anyway, the the other thing about this band and Motley Crue, we went into this a lot. We'll get into the same topic in other bands. Is you know doing research for this episode and watching interviews and reading about these guys. Um, for, by and large, they're complete morons. They just are. I mean, when, when I was thirteen, it maybe it was okay or amusing to think, you know, these guys talking about trim, 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 you know, all that kind of stuff. Maybe it was funny back then, or even in a, in a very immature way, sort of, uh, you know, aspirational. I got maybe that's the word, but now I, I I just can't take it. It's just like you know to hear like the same level of you know braggadocio from like you know sixty five year old burnouts that you know back from. 1983. I just, I just can't take it. It's just so dumb. And I can't even hear, stand to hear them talk. You were mentioning the Stephen Piercy Google talks that he did. It's unlistenable. <laughs> the guy can't even put together a sentence. He seems completely uninterested in being there. He has nothing to say. He, he really has nothing to say, very little to contribute. And, you know, ultimately these guys like Bobby Blotzer and, and Piercy and these others, Nobody, they, they haven't really done anything, kind of to your point in like what has happened after Rat. Um, since the early 80s, they don't really have anything new to say. They don't have any music that's worth listening to. And just to hear them talk about, you know, groupie stories or how much blow they did or how many groupies they banged and, you know, all that is just, it's, it's all, so to speak, fucked out. You know, it's just like, I've heard it already. I've heard it done better from Zeppelin and, you know, Hammer of the Gods and, stuff like that. Spinal Tap already has parodied this to the point of it's beyond parody. And I, you know, and the only thing these guys really talk about beyond that is their lawsuits against each other. So we can get the, you know, Bobby Blotzer rat experience. It's like, please, I hope he loses that suit. No one needs to, to hear that. Um, the other thing too, um, you just on that is, I don't know, maybe this is a, our, its own show slip, but at what point can you not call yourself that band? Yeah, do you know what I mean? True. Do, do you know what I mean? It's like, okay, if you have like, is it half the original members? Is it a majority? So more than half? If it's is it one guy or is it no guys like Foreigner who's actually touring around and it's no original members? 
at what point are you just a cover band? And if you're just the drummer and you have a bunch of scabs playing all the other things, you're our cover band. And I get it that you were the original drummer, but no one cares. I mean, no one cares unless you are on the level of being a drummer of a Stuart Copeland or as uh, Neil Peart or, you know, some, uh, truly great. Uh, yeah, but even drummer. one member, you can't do it because, you know, Stuart Copeland couldn't go get two other guys and be the police. Uh, of course, you know, it's, but I mean, it's it, he's he's worthy of seeing, though, is my point. Oh, yeah, yeah. You could you could you could go see him do something and he might play a police cover or something, but it wouldn't right. be as the police. Whereas like blots are doing the rat experience. I mean, you without Stephen Piercy, for one thing, it's it you can't do that. That's not rad. I, and Blotzer is the worst example because he didn't write a single song for the band, which is one of the reasons they would get into fights because he wanted to play more because he wasn't getting royalty money. I mean, that's why Stephen Piercy has a nice family and pool and stuff is uh, is probably the residuals. Uh, he wrote almost every song. He's all over the place, whereas Blotzer didn't write a single song for Rat. So it's even more ridiculous than if it was just Stephen Piercy and a bunch of guys calling themselves Rat. Yeah, it's like uh, John Ford Coley, you know, going off and yeah. you know, songs he didn't write and well, songs he didn't yeah. actually sing. Yeah. <laughs> Foreigner, um, I think if we ever do Foreigner, uh, because I have personal stories around this, it, Foreigner is absolutely the most ridiculous example because there's no original numbers in there now. Um, and it's, I think the closest they have is a guy from the 90s. So if we do that, maybe we'll go into that. Although we, we seem to go into this, it seems to be a theme. So as we do more shows, we'll always come to this for any legacy band that's still playing. This is the question, right? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe we need to develop some kind of algorithm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Here. A rule. We, we need to come up with a formula for when you're allowed to do this. Because I get mad about the who, too. Yeah. Like two dudes. Two yeah. dudes. I mean, it's it's not a band. You know, it's not know. the who. It's really just Pete Townsend. It should be Townsend slash Daltrey. It's just they don't sell as many tickets that way. So they, yeah. you know. You got to respect. I mean, Led Zeppelin, you could say, is sort of the exception because when they did play as Led Zeppelin, they had Bonham's kid. And, okay, it, you know, the, the, could you call it Led Zeppelin? Not really, but it, but it was a one-off, too. It was a one-off. One. They That's didn't right. make an That's album. Right. They didn't keep touring. I mean, they Jimmy Page yeah. wanted to do that. He wanted to get a different singer. And Robert Plant was sticking to his guns. He never wanted to do that. And when they did the stuff in the 90s, it was Page Plant. They yeah, never I called agree. it Led Zeppelin because they didn't, you know, even though John Paul Jones was pissed at them. He's like, why didn't you include me, guys? But but yeah. they did their own thing and they called it Page Plan and they only called it Led Zeppelin. Again, with the the only person who rightfully could probably sit in that chair, the son of the drummer as a tribute, yeah. a one-time tribute. They weren't going to like start touring again and calling themselves Led Zeppelin with Jason Bonham. They just said right. this is one-time thing. So yeah, yeah it's totally reasonable. They had more, yeah. they have more integrity than the Who. You know, the Who are like the critics' darlings, and they're like punk rock and all this. They have the least integrity of anybody. The yeah. Led Zeppelin had more integrity for sure. Well, they called it themselves the Who. The Who sell out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They sold out. Um, so okay, from from a band point of view, yeah, I I mean, look, we talked about the handful of songs that you could put on a playlist that will stand the test of time for us. I agree with you, uh, Slip, about those, and I'm short on the band outside of that, you know, handful, six, seven songs that um, are, are probably, this album we're talking about aside, 
um, that they're just not going to be remembered for much. I I think that um, for the album itself and related, I've listened to this a couple uh, times for the show, and I, it's interesting because I think you came back to this album having not heard it as much, right. and are really enthused and, and sort of rediscovered it. I kind of had the opposite response because I listened to this album like a hundred times when it came out as a kid. And I listened to it for this show a couple of times. I'm like, yeah, you know, these were good. And I'm like, I'm good. Like, I don't need to listen to this for a while. <laughs> um, I just, it, it's just it's a little fucked out to me. Um, kind of sort of like back in black, you know, we talked yeah, about yeah. a couple episodes ago. Um, do I think this album will, will stand the test of time as an album? Yes. But probably for just people like us who have a nostalgia for them back um, in the 80s who are aficionados of this of this genre. Yes, for- dude, I have to mention this because when I read this from you, this made me think of this. All of the shout outs to this album that have happened, all of the ways that this album has stood the test of time, if you could say that, is yeah. references to Round and Round. And they're all based on nostalgia. Yeah. So you have the wrestler. Right. And then yep. you have the Geico commercial. So these yeah. are all based on a nostalgia for the 80s. They're not based on just, oh, this song is actually great, even though I do think it is. And I think people like it. I think it's all nostalgia is all embedded in there. So if you can't divorce that, then will it stand the test of time? That's the question, right? Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And so, I mean, I, I think Rat will be I'm so long term here. Finally, wrapping this up, Rat will be remembered, I think, for round and round for sure. Um, and 80s, and it will be on 80s uh, hair and metal playlist forever, and as it should be. Absolutely classic, great song. I think the rest of the album, maybe I'm slightly, slightly long um, for people who are rediscovering this uh, genre and are into this type of music. I would say slightly long only because the current value for the album is probably really, really low. Even somebody who this is right in their wheelhouse and live through it. You're rediscovering it. And so like right now, if you were, uh, you know, uh, 30 years from now rediscovering, you'd be really excited. You'd be like, oh, wow, this is great. I think there is a future of people rediscovering this who don't even have the nostalgia for it. It's not that many. And I'm slightly long just based on a low current valuation. But on the hits, certainly round and round, maybe, you know, back for more wanted man might make it to deeper cut uh, 80s playlists. But round and round will be around forever. And anytime somebody's just like, hey, 80s, you know, playlist of rock music, it's going to be on there and people are going to like it because it really is an all time great song. There's just no question about it. So that's kind of where I come down on all this. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think we're mostly in agreement here, although I think my enthusiasm, again, it's the novelty. Like I did, it's a sort of a newer album for me than it is for you. Um, Cool. So that's, uh, I think, I guess that's it then. We're calling it. It is. All right. Well, everyone, that's episode 40 out of the cellar. Um, You know, don't, here's a tip, you know, if you have friends uh, and they're in a hotel, don't go into their bathroom and and take a dump. (laughs) Horrible. (laughs) 